Hi, this is front of house engineer Scotty Baldwin, and you are listening to the PPUK podcast. Well, welcome to PPUK. This episode, we've got a fantastic and a special guest with us. Um, we've got Scotty Baldwin, front of house engineer for many artists, including, of course, Prince. With me to, on this show tonight is going to be Paddy. Hey, good evening. Thank you for um, thank you for coming on board, and welcome, Scotty. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm excited, and I'm a fan of your show, so I'm looking forward to it. Oh man, that's amazing. Yeah, firstly, uh, front of house engineer for many people that are listening that might not know what that is. A brief explanation from yourself of what you do and uh, how you add to all the artists that you've worked with in yeah, the live people, arena. Pe- people always overlook that. They just say front of house engineer, and if unless you know or have been to theater productions. That's where it's used most heavily. So there's front of house and back of house. And I, I am, of course, um, you would consider a monitor engineer, someone who engineers for the band, um, You, any costume designers, anybody like that is back of house. Um, I am front of house. So I'm where the audience is. So when anyone goes to a concert, I would be the engineer that you can see in the crowd. And I'm actually mixing mixing the show for the audience. So we have you to thank for when the sound goes well. And you have me to blame for when it doesn't. <laughs> Absolutely. So how do you get into this? How do you find yourself in the front of house as opposed to either back of house or any other position in sound? I've kind of always, I've always felt that mixing audio for concerts sort of found me. I didn't go out in search of it. It wasn't a goal of mine to get into it. It sort of found me and I kept getting, I kept continuing to get good gigs and good offers from artists directly from the artists. So I sort of fell into it and just kept doing it. And now I find myself at 30 plus years of, of, um, mixing audio for, for audiences all around the world for a, a myriad of different artists. For each artist, I'm assuming you approach the same job in many different ways. How, when you get a new artist, what's the first thing that you consider? What's the first thing that you're considering when you're approaching the new show, the new? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I haven't been asked that. The first thing I do is get to know their material. I start to familiarize myself with their material and I have to get to know it as well as the band knows it and almost as well as the artist knows their own material and their own source for the inspiration of the art. Because I'm, after all, I'm trying to translate what artists are doing on stage and making it palatable and accessible and listenable to the audience. So I always keep the audience. The first thing I do is keep the audience in mind because after all, I sort of am an audience member. I'm just in a position of being able to control the sound. And, but I learn the music and I learn the interstitials between songs. That's a big, important thing for me and something people don't often consider. It's never, it's not often just the song itself. It's how we get from one song to the other, what we do in between. What is that in between that, um, that connects all the songs as, a, as one composition? A concert is one composition of many songs, just like a song is a composition of many different parts of a song. Mm-hmm. So I have to look at the composition of a, a concert and sort of figure out how I'm going to go is how I'm going to mix it. Am I going to mix it with volume here? Am I going to pull back there? Are we going to do, and owing only to a conceptual change by an artist or a musical director, I will take my cues from them conceptually, but then I can sort of craft how a show goes and how it sounds. That was kind of one of my questions. Obviously every artist is going to be different. And I guess some artists 
may ask more for an opinion. Some artists may be slightly, not in a negative way, but a little bit more dictatorial about what they want. Do you do you often feel that there is a little bit of a, a blur in terms of just doing a good job and actually being creative in certain respects? Yes, uh, absolutely. And I've done both in my career. I've had artists that didn't really care um, about their sound. I've had artists, big artists too. Um, and their musical directors didn't say much to me either. They just didn't give direction. They didn't do anything. So I sort of took it upon myself to either, oh, you know, I sort of always overachieve because I, I come to things prepared and ready to go and ready to um, ask challenging questions and ask them artistically, what are you feeling at this point? And sometimes I didn't get the chance to, to sort of put those things in and I just do enough. I, or, or I should say, I just have to do enough to make it sound good and just mix what they're doing. Other times artists are a mess and they need the help. They need the help of someone <laughs> who has done this and knows how to curate. That's really what it is, is curate the listening experience for the, for the, um, for the listener. And also owing to the artistic um, sensibility of the, both the artist and the musical director, I can kind of make that happen. I can facilitate whatever they want to do. Do you find it hard to put yourself in the place of the audience with when an artist, like, as you say, isn't really caring that much or maybe not caring, but not understanding what the front of house is? Is that is that a harder position to be in than with someone who has a clear idea? Way harder. Yeah, Um, because there seems to be a. um, Oh, my friend Gerald McCauley used to say my lovely departed friend Gerald McCauley used to say it becomes creative meandering. I love that term. And it's just a show. A show is just sort of creative and half creative and just sort of there's no real focus or attention. Or maybe it's just all the songs one after the other without any sort of um, any sort of push away where they're seeing the actual arc of a, a dramatic arc of a show happen. And that's when good show directors and good show uh, musical directors and good artists who really care and have aptitude toward creation of a show, uh, they become really critical and important. And I love joining uh, an artist who has a vision that I can help imbibe that vision. Yeah, because I've seen many shows and some of them are just basically a list of songs with the biggest sing-along hit at the end. And then there's other shows which are quite clearly the artists have got that kind of uh, start, middle, and end. They've got a concept of where the show has started off, whether it be in visuals as well or as just in kind of a presentation of songs. And it's it's always a much more satisfying arc for me as an audience member when you're kind of you feel like you're kind of being led from the front, so to speak, in that respect. And I imagine that a, a crew responds to those kind of ideas and that kind of narrative. Well, it's, it, it would be the, um, I like how you said that it, it would be tantamount. It would be the same as going to a movie and in two hours, all you see are a bunch of beautiful images and scenes and there's nothing, there's no congruence and there's nothing or it's incongruent and it doesn't really all go together. And we, certainly we've seen movies like that, but it's much more satisfying to go to something a hundred minutes, 120 minutes that really takes you somewhere. It isn't just bubblegum. It's not just a bunch of songs stuck together. Um, I've seen huge artists do what I call bubblegum shows where they're just trying to do, okay, then we're going to do that song, then this song, and then that song. 
and maybe there's a big wardrobe change. Maybe there's a horse, a fake horse. Maybe there's some a, something flies over the crowd. It's and or gags. They call them gags. So you have the the confetti gag, the cannons gag, the fire gag. It's sort of all of it is great, but unless it's all tied together with a real um, dramatic sense of of um, gravity. Yeah. Um, it, it, it feels unsatisfying. It feels like eating a, a frozen pizza. You sort of get done, you eat a whole one by yourself. And after you're done with the napkin, you go, okay, I, what I just ate, isn't going to make me fat. Like that didn't satisfy me. You want something more satisfying. It's visual snacking without any yeah. kind of context. I've, I've got to say, it surprises me to find that shows with huge visual cues are, are ever made in that respect because, the amount of attention, I mean, the amount of attention from yourself and from the rest of the crew it would take and planning it takes to put those things together anyway, even that you'd think that there'd be someone kind of stringing those arcs together. I've met very few people in the industry that have a sense of all departments and can bring us all together as one and make us as a crew and as artists, uh, I'm no less an artist than Morris Hayes, right? Yeah. It, and I play an instrument too, and it's a sound console. But so when you bring all those people together and you make a composition, you make a concerto of both artists, band, technical support. When we all get in concert together, it can really be strong and it can change. I mean, I, I, I'm not being overly dramatic when I say it can change people's lives. Oh. Because they'll always look back to a certain show and things when it all really comes together is really important. Well, I mean, I can say for a fact that bringing it back to say Prince is um, those shows have changed my life. The ones mm -hmm. that I've gone to see, uh, some of which you have actually engineered, uh, uh, some of which you are doing the front of house sound for. And uh, that's actually true. I mean, it's it's not a big it's not an exaggerated thing to say. It's a, It's not a bold claim. I mean, we're doing podcasts about it. People are talking about it, interviewing, we're still interested. It comes from a point of view that our lives were changed by those experiences. So it's com completely 100% agree with you there. So I guess thanks for that, Scotty. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's my, it's yeah, my... thank you. <laughs> yeah, every time I say uh, you're welcome, I mean it. I, I think about what I'm saying and I think about what you've gone through to put you in front of microphones with a big time difference uh, between us and you want to talk about something that was important to you, something that was part of the import of your life and got inside of you and is maybe is the reason that you're doing what you're doing because those kind of concerts, those experiences live um, as a support to the record that you heard um, are important to you and they're meaningful. And I, I love being a part of that creative process. I guess in terms of in terms of having sort of a full vision, I love the way that you talked about like this uh, com compartmental idea of different people with different responsibilities pulling those together holistically to create something that's extra special. So you've you know the sum of the parts plus plus almost. With Prince, it, it always feels like Prince has a has a vision with his with his shows, and that there's something very specific. And I think it's always come across very strongly that he not overly controlling per se but he, he's got a, a strong initial line in what he wants what he would like to happen etc etc but the counter to that is a lot of the time you get to, and it was interesting because you mentioned this about 
similar to Mr. Hayes with an instrument and so on. His, his musicians often say, it's not quite what you think. He wants me to just go and do my thing within the confines of what fits and, and the, the, the overall sort of orchestration. From a, from a working point of view with him on a show then, and sort of going back a bit to my previous question about how creative you can be, where are those, where are those kind of lines drawn and how is, how is that working with Prince? And over the years, I mean, he must have trusted you, obviously, grown to trust you. Uh, over the years, did you feel that that line moved towards you and he would sort of let you create more or a bit more leeway or be more inclined to, all right, I don't, you know, I'll go with that then? Um, yes, all of that. <clears throat> what made Prince stand out from other artists is that, well, first of all, I, I've talked in the past about him being universally respected by all artists. At, and I mean, you ask a member of Metallica, you ask a, a very famous opera singer, you ask a filmmaker, everyone loves Prince. And they love him for different reasons, but one of which was that he had a clear, almost definable goal every time he took the stage or put out a record. They were sort of thematic. Now, I'm not going to BS anybody and say that he worked that vision or goal through all the way to the end, because I had seen some really sort of almost embarrassing moments with Prince where, for example, someone hit had to hit play on the projector at front of house to play this background image on one tour. And it was a VHS tape. So when they pressed play on the VCR, it was actually light blue and it said play in the upper left-hand corner. <laughs> and, and that happened every night. And I would just kind of giggle. And I thought, man, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to get anyone in trouble. But if Prince saw that happening, he would be horrified. And the cheap, dirty solution is put something over the front of the projector, hit play, let it start playing, and then just pull it off so it doesn't reveal. There are quick, easy band-aids like that. And there are plenty of those kind of moments in, in a lot of Prince shows. It wasn't quite as tight as you would seem as it would seem. And when musicians talk about, as you said earlier, about just kind of leave me alone and let me do my thing. And there's freedom within that. Yes, there is. And a lot of times Prince just wouldn't, couldn't be bothered about things. So it wasn't all by design is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And rarely, rarely is it all by design with every artist. And there is a point of control at which we reach that we say, uh Oh, you know, this, this has become untenable and it's become just sort of a mess and everyone's kind of doing their own thing, or you can go too far and control everything. And then someone's coming up saying, you need to mix it this way. And I'll say, well, that's not really effective for the live thing. That person comes downstage and they have a solo and you don't want me to turn it up. And they're like, no, don't turn it up. So I've, ha I've mixed in both situations and Prince did to answer your question, the end of your question, um, yes, <clears throat> he did trust me. And in the past, I've resisted saying that we were friends just because I've always sort of kept a, a respectable distance from artists, because when you think you're untouchable or too close, that can tend to burn one. And I've learned over the years that um, it's better just to keep the respect and stay a little bit distant and just keep my nose down and do my work but still be as creative and service in service to their material and the audience as I can. Actually going back to one of the points you were saying about, uh, um, cause like Prince has been both over control. And like you say, 
areas where he should have maybe reined stuff in. And I was wondering, because when you were doing, at one point you were doing uh, drum tech for Michael Bland. Uh, were you there for the shows where Prince tried to do front of house himself yes. from the stage? Because I was always interested by that from, from just from reading it. I'm like, well, how will that ever work out? Because you've got no meaningful reference point if you're on stage. So were you ever, were you Michael's drum tech for that? Or were you in the crowd? I was Michael's drum tech for that. And um, I left right as that was occurring. As a matter of fact, when I left in 1994 to go start my career in mixing with Sheila E, um, the soundboard was on the stage at that point. And I, um, the, the anecdote I can put to that is that one time in, I think it was around 2002. Yeah, we were on One Night Alone Live. Uh, we were on One Night Alone Tour. And we were playing in Toronto at a place called Massey Hall. And because it's a classic venue, they don't take any seats out. They just put plywood, wood on a whole bunch of seats and they eat up a tremendous amount of area that the audience could be sitting in. And I went the night before and saw an artist there. And then I saw that horrible setup and just, it was unsexy and it was just not what you'd want to see when you came into a venue is a bunch of wood and the soundboard on it and an uncomfortable position for the engineer. And so I called Prince and I said, Hey man, we should, we should have me mix from the loading dock with some reference speakers. I'll mix the show from backstage on reference speakers, smaller versions of my live speakers, and it'll sound amazing and you can make more money. And he said, no, we don't mix from backstage, Scotty. And I said, well, okay, man, but this is coming from a guy who mixed the show himself from on stage. And he said, without hesitation, he said, yeah, but that's when I hated everybody. So, <laughs> so it, for him, it was, for him, it was, um, an issue of trust and control. There's simply no way to super accurately mix a show at front of house and represent what an audience is hearing if one is not in the position of an audience member. It just doesn't work out as well. Um, but having said that, that artist needs to give away their control of the sound and the energy and the air movement and the effects and all the interstitials and the correct volume level and all that stuff has to be given away to a person that that artist doesn't really consider a band member. And that's what most artists do is they don't consider sound a band member. Prince, I had the luxury of him considering me a band member and saying, I was, I mean, I, I've said this quote before, but he used to say in rehearsals, he used to say, hey, y'all, we got to respect our two extra band members, Scotty and Silence. He considered Silence a band member. Yeah. The space between the notes, the things he talks about and silence in between things. And when he would talk over silence, he considered that sound, but silence was a sound to him. And he considered me a band member because I was controlling all of their hard work and making it appealing to the people listening to it. So I did have his trust and we were friends and I've come to realize in this, God, how many years now? Six years? Yeah. In the six years on I've realized that we had a good, super good working relationship and he did give me, you know, enough rope to hang myself with. He would leave me out there. And I think a lot of times he would come to a club and hear uh, in Minneapolis and watch a band and I'd be mixing the band. He'd come right up to the soundboard and I had, I'd have had two or three beers in me and I'd be doing some really creative stuff. And I think he liked my fearlessness for sure. I mean, we had, we had, 
many conversations about being fearless and that the fact that today's artists aren't fearless. Everything is done from watching another artist be successful at it. And then they go into it. Nobody's digging the tunnel. They all, they all want to pretend that, but they're all following someone else. And Prince is an artist that a lot of people followed. Um, I only think he lost his way when he started to follow the people that he had already influenced. You talk about a snake chasing its tail. When Prince started to say, well, in Beyonce's show, they do this. Or in Katie's show, they do this. Or did you see Adele's, what microphone she's using? And I was like, yeah, man, but we, you know, we don't, you don't have to use an Adele's microphone. He wanted to get Adele's microphone. He wanted me to buy that microphone. And I thought, but it's a completely different thing. Like he had lost his way about what microphone to use. He could use any microphone and be successful. Yeah. Well, he had an amazing mic technique uh, from uh, from an audience point of view he had this amazing mic technique not only did he have this amazing range he had this kind of amazing mic technique i mean how do you, is it you that's going about picking the mic for the show and yes. and how do you with somebody that with such a vast group of styles tones range and also somebody who can control their breath in such a way that they've still got power at falsetto level screams screams and they have to go and whispers in baritone how do you even go about like miking a voice like that and making it work in a stadium and a club chopin i've been waiting for 15 years for somebody to ask me that question <laughs> i mean it that's a wonderful question that i don't hear asked uh, at all. And if if anyone alludes to it, it's not often enough. Prince had an amazing voice. We all know that. And I once, I think famously on another podcast said that I, or maybe I tweeted or something that his best instrument was keyboards. And people jumped all over me and said, no, of course it was guitar. And I think the real answer is, uh, and I've come to kind of agree with that. Um, I think he was a little more creative um, and less stayed than he was on guitar on key, on keyboards than he was on guitar. Guitar, he was a really super great funk player, an amazing rhythm player, and everything was sort of blues based and pentatonic scale, blues scale based. Yeah. Um, but he had a great touch. On keyboards, he thought because he wasn't trained uh, and didn't read music, on keyboards he was free to make mistakes, seemingly make mistakes, but they were actually very very complex and. Um, interesting chordal progressions and runs and um, the way he would voice chords was very, very much like he learned from Lisa Coleman, how to voice chords. She had a tremendous amount of effect uh, on his career and how he uh, played and um, on his voicings. And I noticed a marked change after Lisa joined the band. Um, having said that his voice was his greatest instrument for sure. Um, never flat or sharp. He could nail anything, anytime he had a facility. He didn't fear any songs. He could give you the whisper or the shout um, with equal effectiveness at any point in the show. It's as almost as if he ever signed a deal with the devil on any level. I think it would have been the quality and, and sustenance of his voice was the thing that he did because it was perfect from beginning to end. And it's, to, so to work with that, making the right mic choice was easy. I could have done it with a, a very cheap, inexpensive $100 US, you know, $100 US dollar, sure, 58, and it would have been fine forever, his whole career. And he used a 58 for, for a lot of his career, but I put him on Sennheiser and near the end, I put him on 
a Heil mic um, for the piano and microphone show, just because I knew proximally his effect, what he wanted from playing piano, the um, his proximity effect would be most uh, best used on a big fat diaphragm, uh, not a, not a condenser mic, but a but a, a, a dynamic mic with a big fat condenser uh, diaphragm, excuse me, and that he would be able to get the effect he wanted, as evidenced by him the night before the piano show. He said. Um, I've always wanted to sing way back from a mic. Can you help me do that? And I said, absolutely. And I did a couple of signature things that I do to vocal channels um, that allowed him to be back very far and snap and to sing and to sort of whisper and to do that low talking voice that he did from not right up on the microphone, but back quite a ways, at least a foot. And, but still be able to fully give all that volume out of front of house without, uh, without feedback. I, I've got to say, I um, went to a celebration uh, in Paisley Park about 2018, and they screened that uh, two parts of that Paisley Park show. Mm. And hearing it on the on those speakers, it, it sounded phenomenal. That mix sounded absolutely phenomenal. And if it ever comes out, people are really <laughs> gonna go wild for that one because it. Uh, it's interesting what you say about the large diaphragm microphone because it captures his chest voice, you know, like the chest voice really lovely on that performance. And I was just wondering, and I was wondering about that kind of, he talks from far back and I wondered whether it was just that Paisley Park room being carpeted and stuff was a, not a very reverberant room that you were, he was able to do that uh, because it didn't sound over compressed either. No, um, no, I try to always leave Prince as least compressed as I had to, um, because he really, the dynamic was in both his voice and his mic technique. So if, if I want to piss all that away and just squash the hell out of him and take all that away, that, that takes away the musicality of depth and width of his voice. So I would try and just grab the top stuff. And I knew when he was checking a microphone, I always knew whether it was a club show or a concert, um, I knew where that level would be. And I sort of put that brick wall sort of up high so that when he yeah. screamed, it wouldn't distort. And it was, it was interesting to, to see that show back at Paisley park as well. And uh, to know the, the emotive quality of that January 21, 2016 show, he really needed the close and the far in it because mm. half of that show was, was basically narrative. And he was talking while, while playing underneath, he was talking over the top. So I didn't, I certainly didn't know that was going to happen, but he made it more of a narrative um, overview of his life up to that point. So um, yeah, it will get out someday. And, and I'm, I'm super proud of that. And my goal would be to, and I've already talked to the estate about wanting to take that uh, informally, I should say, yeah. about wanting to take that show on the road take the multi-tracks of that show and where we go back to all the venues we played in Australia and it would be Kirk and me. And, um, we would go back and do a Q and a session and beforehand, and then we would play the show back and I would actually wow. mix it real time as I mixed it in the room, not just playing back the stereo version of the show, but I would actually do the speaker setup the same. I would actually play back the show the same. And during a Q and a segment, I could play back just his vocal or just his piano, uh, sort of break it down, sort of a breakdown, a high resolution view and listening to that show. I think the fans would love it. They deserve it. And, um, it's really what's sort of needed for closure 
uh, yeah. for for his life, and it what a way to to end on that. Have you, have you felt since his passing, you've kind of warmed back? That's that is an amazing an amazing suggestion. Oh my uh, god, yes. Hopefully, it progresses far more than an informal chat with the state. I mean, uh, sign me up on the ticket. Yeah, you know? <laughs> just take yeah, my we, money. <laughs> that's. Yeah, I was just going to say, take my money. Uh, but do you feel? I seem to remember I'd uh, heard you on one, cast, uh, one podcast, I think so shortly after he died, there was a period of time where perhaps you, okay, that, that chapter's closed, you felt a little bit reticent to perhaps engage. Mm-hmm. Has over time, I guess it speaks volumes to your relationship and feelings about that time that you would therefore get to the point where you'd be having that informal talk is, is kind of where I'm going. Was that was that a bit of a journey to get there? And were there any triggers specifically which made you think, actually, no, there's a bit more road to war? Because obviously you did the revolution stuff and things like that. But um, that was the, the revolution was part of it. I, I don't know. I think there's what, five stages of grief and um, yeah, yeah. you have to go through those. And certainly I had done some interviews when I hadn't made it all the way through. Working with the revolution was a big part of my, um, not that it's about me, but we, we all, nobody owns the grieving process. Okay. So we all have our, our own relationship with that. And, um, sure. There was a bit of, um, uh, a bit of it was solved by working with, um, Bobby, Wendy, Mark, Lisa, and Matt, uh, the, the original revolution, because it got, it got a glimpse into his early career and his early part of his, who he was as a person through all their stories uh, the stories that that now mean a lot to me and them sharing with me help help me understand him a bit a bit better as an artist and then um uh visiting paisley park and actually inter- interacting with mitch who runs paisley park now and and um and trevor who who works on the music for the estate and just all of it as a all of it as a process right it's all sort of getting to a, a thing where we don't have hurt feelings anymore and we don't um uh Certainly, if we've learned anything in the past two plus years of going through what we've gone through, that um, and especially uh, not just the pandemic, but in my city, my home city of Minneapolis, and the upheaval that happened over the murder of of George Floyd by the police, people that we trust, there's got to be. We all have, don't we, a sense of uh, understanding one another over a period of time and change we can change over a period of time and seeing things a different way so yeah i've clearly i've come to a a better feeling about uh, my my contribution to his career knowing he was a prolific live performer and i was probably his most um used and and certainly most appreciated front of house engineer and and um uh I, i i i consider it a total honor to have been part of getting fans what they loved about their um greatest artists and my my biggest regret would be a fan that felt that I in some way um, failed them when they came to a show, you know, cause not everybody can be happy in every venue every time. Yeah. The physics of sound are such yeah. that I'm trying to really basically hit a home run for the most people I can at the same time. And um, so I did the best I could and I would love to think what it would be like for Prince. Okay. I mixed an artist in Taipei earlier this, a huge artist in Taipei earlier this year. And I mixed the show in Dolby 11.1 surround sound. It was the first time that's ever been done in Dolby like that. And 
Um, it sounded phenomenal. And there were many points during the two week, uh, it, it was over a 16 day period. We did 12 shows in Taipei arena. And there were times that it was, it sounded so good that I was, I would picture Prince next to me. I would think about him and how much he would have enjoyed and been happy at how it sounded. And it made me feel proud. You know, I always say that I worked with Prince, not for him, but still deep inside, there is something that I always wanted to impress him. I always wanted him to be um, impressed and proud of me. Um, I know he was super proud of the box set that came out. He said so. He was happy that he wanted he wanted me to write liner notes and they were impactful and meaningful. To, you know, I wrote liner notes in the mm -hmm. middle. They're hard to find, but you can find them online somewhere. And 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 um and he was really proud of those notes. Like he said, look, you're giving an overview of your whole our career together. And I said, Yeah, man, it's just it, it was uh, so I know he would have been proud at Ame's show in in Taipei when it was sounded so good and things were coming from behind and the sides and it was it's just really I still look to impress him even in death. That's that thing that's interesting you say about the uh the ownership of the kind of grieving process and we don't because obviously like being in fan gatherings there's been so many ways that grief has been expressed and and one of the weird things is I know from my point of view in in my own kind of journey of it was in the initial stages I just wanted to play party music and it's just like well you know for me as somebody who's I think you and I are kind of grieving two different things. I'm grieving a kind of an icon and a an influence, whereas you would be grieving a more like fuller idea of a human being. So for me, it wasn't until a few months later where I was like, it feels like it's time for Prince to roll into town again. That's when it started to go, oh, I'm really missing something. Because I had the music that I, on a day-to-day -day basis and the videos on a day-to-day -day basis that were his influence on my life and but then it's like oh there was this uh periodical top up of uh, this amazing live performance that oh that's not coming round again i'm starting to understand just what we lose when we lose an artist of that stature and that i think is why our process you know like from a fan point of view our process is a a, a little bit longer because the the immediacy of contact is uh so delayed by the kind of touring process yeah um you, you make me think of of something in your in the way that you handled the grief um i i was thinking the other day as i was listening to still one of my favorite artists with whom to work was a band called scissor sisters and i grieve them on a regular basis and no one has passed on but their music is so good and so needed now um, by not only the world, but the LGBTQIA plus community that I, it would be such a beautiful time for Scissor Sisters to come back. Um, Jake and Baby Daddy and Del and Anna were very special and their shows were amazing. And I go through this sort of strange grieving process about not feeling like I might never not only mix another show of theirs, but just get to hear them live. And you're right. I had that watershed. I had that moment as myself. I went, wait, they're not going to play again unless they decide to, but Prince is never going to walk into a room again, much less play it. 
Yeah. And that, that's sort of sad and um, not to be sort of melancholy about it, but it's, there's beauty in all that we were given by him. And there's sadness in knowing that it will never be again. I think a piano show of that personal nature yeah. and going back and playing the actual version in the actual city that he played in every city in Australia, and then maybe taking the Paisley Park one on January 21st and taking that around the U.S., to major cities and doing it and doing Q and A's. I think it would be lovely. And I think it would be in service to him. And I think it even, you know, I haven't specifically talked to Kirk about this specifically, but I think it would be good for the healing, for the healing that yeah. through what Kirk had to go through yeah. um, the initial blame that a lot of fans put on Kirk when yeah. really in reality, I knew from the very beginning that Prince was responsible for himself and that that was a lot of unfair to put on to Kirk. And hopefully over time, as we've seen in the past few years, there is a level of understanding that can be reached by each of us individually about other people. And that would be, I think, a beautiful way for Kirk and or I to talk about that process and what we went through during the piano show. Uh, absolutely. And if you ever do that, please, please take it to London. I mean, I'd, I'd happily go to the oh, States. Undoubtedly, we go to London. Oh, yeah. Please. Uh, which is a kind of, when you're taking a show like that on the road, which kind of leads to another thing is like when you talk about the, uh, the, the other band members and the instrument you have as the desk. When you're taking a show like that on tour, do you consider the room itself the ever-changing room on tours? Do you consider that? as another instrument or part of the band as well when you're approaching? That's a beautiful question. And that's really thoughtful of you. Um, yes, for sure. Every venue has its own challenges and that venue itself is an instrument and it's an instrument of reverberation and, and of, of containment, you know, when, especially when you're indoors, whether you're at Royal Albert Hall or you're at uh, uh, Kodak Theater in LA, whatever it is, they, they all have a characteristic and it's working within those confines because rooms are unforgiving. They don't care about you and they don't care what you're mixing. They're going to do what they do. And they're, they're very bullish and they, they have their way. So it's trying to get along and get in synergy and get along with that room. And good engineers know how to work along with a room and be in concert with the room itself. And we know what to do with the music and all the different elements of low end and high end and pronunciation and Oh, you know, uh, having things be transparent and getting them out to people and trying to have the people absorb them. Are there any rooms you particularly have kind of like an, an affinity or a kind of love affair for when you're approaching them? Because I imagine you go appear at the same kind of venues time after time when you go with different artists. Is, have you ever found a room that's just like, I've never mixed a show bad in here or I've never oh. had Problems. Yeah, there there are several places as far as a dead quiet mix that sounds like a studio. Um, there's a place in Singapore called Canning Park. And that is it's on the side of a hill. I don't even think the hill is perfectly level. It's a little bit at an angle. It's in front of an old uh, building. And it's it's just a beautiful place to come and see a show. It's sort of a natural amphitheater. And it sounds like a studio. And I've had more beautiful mixes where I thought this is perfect. This is exactly how I want it to sound. Canning Park always comes to mind. Any, any of the stadiums to me are easy to mix. A lot of people are, are um, afraid of stadiums, but the sound kind of goes away. It go, it dissipates and it disappears in the air. So I can get away with more 
and I can I can mix it more like a studio. It's it's rooms that are sort of midsize and small that we have to watch out. Theaters can be tricky. Um, overhangs where there is an upper level that has a really deep overhang in theaters, those can be really t- tricky. I have to get very creative in how I deliver high quality sound at full resolution to all the people. One thing I was curious about when when you do a show in the round because you did the musicology tour, um, does that on, on the face of it, somebody who plays live a little bit and knows a little bit about things, you sort of like that that looks like it presents a quite a serious number of, of challenges to get sort of everybody in every seat getting a, a good sound. What's what's your experience of sort of in the round compared to a standard sort of setup? Um, another good question. I uh, Prince always loved. Well, after after musicology, he said he never wanted to go back to an end fire stage, uh, one a stage at the end of a where you fire one direction. Yeah. Um, that changed. I think his just his his mood or his taste changed, and he wanted to do those end fire because it's better for presentation. You can sort of have backdrops, and in the round you don't have a backdrop. You have to really use haze and lighting, um, and you don't have a place to to project video. So that presents another problem when you're in the round. Mm-hmm. But from a mix standpoint, I found I enjoyed in the round. I've mixed in quad sound. The piano show at Paisley Park was in quad. There was sound firing in from all four corners. Prince and I disagreed with that. We came to an agreement. Um, I told him there's only really one place it sounds great is right in the center. But if you're anywhere else, it's sort of disconcerting to look at Prince playing piano over here and you hear it from your right off to the side. So I I made sure we had speakers around the stage as well to sort of support that sound. Um, Musicology was inside firing out in a ball, sort of a ball of PA pointing out. That was preferred. Um, when I mixed Ame and Ta- Taipei this year, I mixed in Dolby 11.1. Most of it was from one end, but then there were parts of the show that I put effects and panned effects around in Dolby wow. 11.1, which was, which is, uh, you know, obviously Dolby 5.1. When you listen to something in Dolby, it's exciting enough, but 11.1 really gave me the creativity and control to be able to put certain little sounds in different parts of the arena. And that was sort of an outward in Dolby experience, but um, surround nonetheless. So uh, it, it, it just depends. And it depends on the artist. Some people tend to overuse things when they find something cool, they'll, or they find a cool guitar, they want to use it for a lot of the show and it loses its effect. Um, when they find a cool uh, shot in a movie, they tend to overuse that effect. I'll, I'll even point to Purple Rain. The, uh, I forgot who the director was, but the shot from behind the motorcycle where it's on the wheel and the license plate. And then he prints oh. and floors it and fl- goes away. I mean, that director used that shot probably <laughs> seven times. It was overused. Yeah. <laughs> it was a cool shot, but it becomes not cool when you overuse it. I'm surprised that it was early in Prince's career. I didn't think he took the liberty to, to say, I don't want to use that. It's cool once, but don't do it 17 times. I, I, to be honest, I hear he did quite well out of that film in the end. So I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe I'm wrong about that, but, uh, but you want to be, we want to be judicious in how we use any sort of effect, even if it's a vocal yeah. effect or something that I'm doing on vocals. Um, there wasn't there a song, I think it was called, yeah, it's called family name that, um, that was on uh, one night alone. And I had to very quickly and almost, and with choreography, I had to change the voice from a very low voice like that to a very high voice, you know, and I had to switch very quickly. And um, when he was different characters in that song 
And I had to like, I had to rehearse the choreography of how I was going to turn the effect on. I was going to do the low voice, then the high voice, back to the low voice or whatever it was at the end of that song and then get Prince's voice back on. Um, And even at the beginning of that show, he, he starts the whole thing with that low voice with the accurate understanding of God and his law, all that. I had to do that effect and Prince had to have the confidence that that was going to be out front, but he wasn't going to hear it in his ears. So there's a trust issue there and there's a choreography to the science of mixing. So that's interesting because I always thought that he triggered that himself through a pedal. So that was you doing that from the desk with like a rack mount unit. That's correct. Oh, fantastic. And, and he never, and that's that effect he never got in his ears, in his monitor, or his, on his, it would be wedge monitors that he was using there, when, right? Uh, no, he had in-ears, in-ear monitors okay. on that tour. But when I, when I came up with that effect and he was at front of house and we were talking about it at Paisley Park, we were talking about something else. And I said, Hey man, I've got an effect for you that matches the record for the intro of the show. And I put headphones, I said here, and I gave him the headphones, he put them on. And he took the mic and I said, just talk a little bit. And invariably what happens is when we talk and we can hear that effect, our, we tend to start talking down like that when we hear it, because we hear it like that. So we go with the accurate understanding of God and his law. And that's exactly what Prince did. So knowing he did that and noticing that I said, he was like, cool, let's use that for the intro of the show. I said, great. And um, he said, don't turn my real voice on until I go into just like the stuff, right? It, yeah. So, and I said, cool, cool. So we worked out the sort of play that we were going to do. And I said, I'm not going to give you that effect in your ears because it'll change the way you talk. So just know it'll be out in the house and you'll hear it in the house. And it worked like that. Some things you can't feed people because they, auto-tune is another thing. I never used auto-tune on prints, I'm proud to say, but auto-tune Artists, we'll ju- I'll just tell them, listen, you just sing, I'll correct it or use the effect out front. If you hear it in your head, you're going to tend to go like that when you hear the auto-tune effect. So I just want you to concentrate on your performance and I'll put the auto-tune out in front. So it depends on the effect, but the creativity, no, that was, I mean, that was out front. I had to do that every night on on command. The, the auto-tune um, comment leads me on. Uh, uh, now this, I, I apologize in advance. This is a little bit of a fan question in overly a fan question but here you go um so i think prince uh, people who are into prince is it like their favorite musician were fairly in many respects were quite sort of rabid about you know this guy's the best or etc etc now i think you made the comment about guitar i i play a bit guitar and i play some prince stuff and and he was a great guitarist but he wasn't like the best guitarist in the world and and again he was you know People are good at different things. You've been in a really unique position and seen so many gigs. You've seen him playing sort of formally live, informally in a sound check and all these kind of things. What would you say there was any aspect of him that you've seen that you would consider truly peerless? Feel, note value. Um, his feel was better than any musician I've met before or since. It was almost, uh, I hate to... It was sort of otherworldly. It was that good. His feel, his depth. I mean, I mean, maybe I'm saying feel wrong, but he had the innate feel that of just the right thing, like chef's kiss, like mm-hmm. just right. And his note value, his 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 um, how much he gave and how much he pulled back, 
And it was in his voice. It was in the way he played keyboards. It was in the way he played guitar. He was always intentional about the way he played every instrument. But the level of intensity in the intentionality was very, it was very different. So he had, he wasn't always full on and he wasn't always pulled back. He had this great depth. And that's part of what feel is, is depth. Um, it's not just an attitude. Feel is sort of a nebulous term because you could say, oh man, that, that she's got great feel, you know, and it, it doesn't mean, it, it means different things to different people. That's like saying Prince wasn't the best guitar player. Well, he was to someone. So it, it becomes subjective, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. again, again, I've said it before, but talent plateaus. So as soon as you get to a certain talent level, you just kind of get different and not better. It's it just becomes preferential to 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 each individual listener as to what their preference is. Prince had an amazing feel, and his decision making on what to do in any situation and how to play it musically was unrivaled. So I would say overall, not just as a live performer, even in the studio. I mean, he was quick. He didn't labor over things. He left a wake of battered and abused uh, engineers in in his past because they had to try and. They had the daunting task of trying to keep up with his ideas and not in a row there to interrupt the artistic flow, which is huge. And he did that all very, and he did it all super cool. Like he was just super cool about everything, the way he did everything. So you really had a, a peerless person at, again, at the things he did. Now he didn't, he didn't score. He didn't um, create violin pieces, uh, you know, violin one from violin two, the second chair, like he didn't know how to score and do things like that, but he just simply didn't do them. He left that to the people that did do them, but the things that he did, man, on almost any level, uh, keyboards, uh, I can think of individual musicians in my career that I thought were peerless in, in their endeavor. But as far as an overall performer, there's nobody really even close. Yeah, so nice and to hear. <laughs> it's 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 lovely to hear that the feel is there from behind the curtain, so to speak, in a to kind of kind of coin a Wizard of Oz phrase mm -hmm. that actually from behind the curtain it still is great, yeah, and still feels as great. Um, I, in the terms of composition, I feel like his his strength was he he could take like a one note jam and compose it on the fly, and. This, he had this kind of knack of live improvisation, and I think that comes from that feel place that you're talking about, mm -hmm. where he can he can take a one night jam, one note jam, and obviously they, you know, even in the rehearsal process, turns into another song that becomes another song. Right. Um, always, sorry, I, it always again what you said about feel and his ability to be aware in the moment and know exactly what he wants to do, where he wants to go, and go there seamlessly and perfectly. I think the solo he did at the end of the George Harrison Hall of Fame thing on my guitar gentle whips, it's sort of technique. It's not like, I don't know, Steve Vai playing for love of God or something like that, but it's almost as if he encapsulated a, a little bit of universal perfection in that moment of how he approached mm -hmm. that and what he did. And like, like you said, his playing is predominantly pentatonic. Again, he's sort of, his funk playing's a little bit different. That is stunning. The speed, the movement, the cleanness uh, over 16th is, is quite, I find that quite stunning as a guitarist. The soloing's, yeah, predominantly pentatonic. But right right thing, right time, right place, complete yep. awareness, complete control. So yeah, I'm really, so it's a, from a personal point of view, I'm really, really 
so happy that that was what you came back with because for somebody who's seen a lot of it up close, that's a lovely thing to hear. And, really. and heard a lot of it in headphones with the solo button on where I could really oh. listen to it. And just where I'm really, um, th this is a person that was com in complete control of his artistic sensibility and his um, ability to register the import of the importance of one note. He could, if he wanted to, he could do a one note solo on a keyboard, one note, not an octave either, just one note and make it funky and make it sound good and play a rhythm during a solo with one note. And it would still, you'd get done and someone would say, oh my God, I just witnessed something that I'd never, ever thought could ever be. Somebody did a solo on one note of one keyboard and it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. And that he was, he was one of the only people I think can get away with that. And yeah. it would still, and it really truly be great. Yeah, cool, man. Well, talking about that, um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame performance, because it happens around the same time as the Musicology Tour. Mm -hmm. When he goes off and does things like, uh, so you're there for Paisley Park shows, you're there for tours. When he goes to perform these kind of like one-off TV shows and stuff, are you brought along as consultant or to yes. do some? Okay. Yeah, I mixed that. Uh, that, And then I think we had somewhere to be that night as well, if I remember. I didn't look at the schedule and I haven't looked back at that. But uh, but so I, I mixed the house sound on the rock and roll. We played a set at first. We played a set. Yeah. And then we and then he came back and we did and he did the, the guitar um, thing, the jam band there, the band jam near the end. Um, we we had a particular problem that day in that he fired the monitor engineer that morning. Uh, the monitor engineer showed up and had to be told, no, 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 he doesn't want you here. And so I had to go out in the hallway and run back and forth from the stage to the hallway and make changes. And at one point I just, and with everybody waiting, like the Prince, the band, they're all there. The other artists that jammed with him, they were all in the audience sitting, waiting, watching the sound check. And I had to kind of run back and forth. And at one point I just said, take 40 B of 250 out of the front wedges, do this. Da, 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 da. And I just sent off all the messages. And then at one point I just kind of looked down cause it didn't sound good. The monitors didn't sound great. I took a second to walk over. He was sitting on a stair next to Rhonda uh, alone with Rhonda uh, stage, right? And I walked over to him and I said, Hey man, I just want you to know in this moment, I know exactly what you've been going through your entire career. And I walked back and then kept doing it. Nope. Make it brighter. Keep coming. Keep coming right there. Now take out some of the bottom. Okay, good. All right, let's move on. Let's go over to this mic. And because I, I understood, I took a moment to say, man, yeah. I get it now. I've really, now I've been in your shoes. A lot of pressure, a lot of artists in the audience were all waiting on me to get this stuff going. And I was covering for someone who got fired and it dawned on me in that moment oh my God, this is what you've gone through. You've just like, you just feel like going, oh, they don't get it. And a lot of them didn't. And a lot of them were good. A lot of engineers, those monitor engineers were good, but they just didn't get him. And I think I had the unique, oh, you know, training or whatever situation made itself so that I knew how to do everything I needed to do. And I knew him. So I had sort of the right key. The key went that much farther into the, the lock hole yeah. and I could unlock yeah. it. Yeah. Is that from being a Minneapolis, coming up on the Minneapolis music scene and understanding where those guys are coming Prin from? Prince, Prince said it was. Um, he he liked people from Minneapolis. He said, we're built of something different. We're different there. 
he it was when he was reading the um uh we were outside at a party right after we'd done the leno show um somewhere in the end of 2000 i don't know two or four i don't know i don't remember we we did the leno show and we uh, one night alone oh one night alone live was coming out it was in december i think of 2002 and we anyway we were at some dominic's i think was the name of the club in la and prince called me outside to thank me for the liner notes i'd written for the album and he said see scotty i knew you'd get it we're from minneapolis we're different you know and he he really had a pride of minneapolis and what we were made of there and what we go through because we all went to the same rehearsal spaces we all smelled the same smells we all used the same instruments we all shared the same soundboards and basses and and drum kit that came with the place like we all are made of something different here there's something, at least there used to be something different about Minneapolis. I don't think it's true anymore, it, especially with the internet and the advent of, oh, you know, producing on your laptop and all the plugins. Everyone uses the same plugins and the same podcast uh, software and everyone uses the same thing. So everything kind of sounds the same now and people have access to what it sounds like to play bass a certain way in Washington, D.C., what it's like to play guitar in Seattle what it's like to play funk in Minneapolis. The only one, again, that they haven't licked is New Orleans, how to play jazz. Is nobody can quite do it the same way they do in New mm. Orleans. It's amazing. I think that New Orleans jazz comes from a very, uh, that's another one that comes from a very deep place of, that's kind of the local trials and tribulations from all the jazz musicians that come up, uh, come up through there. And I imagine one of the trials and tribulations of uh, Minneapolis is the winter. And that lets us be, that lets us sit in our houses for five and a half or six months, yeah. right? So there's nowhere to go. You can't go to parties. We're not in Los Angeles. We're not in um, the South. We stay in and we learn our stuff. And that's what makes us different. It's the shared experience, I think. Now I'm talking on a different level, right? Yeah. It's the shared experiences of regional growing up. And it, it's, it's that regional thing that makes us different. It makes the community of people different. Minneapolis used to have a really supportive community of musicians. Everyone was sort of, um, there was more cooperation, less competition, very different than LA, very different than other places and New York. Um, cause people were vying for the same gigs in New York. People were vying for the same stages in LA vying for that same night at the Troubadour, you know, like you're and Minneapolis had just this, uh, eclectic scene of funk and grunge rock, Soul Asylum, Prince, you know, uh, the replacements, they all were it from the same area. Terry and Jimmy, Husker after Do. Prince. Yeah, yeah. Husker Du, Bob and those guys. They they and some people get it. Uh I've got a friend, uh Fred, who a good friend of mine who who um understands he's not from Minneapolis, but he understands what it's like to be um uh, from Minneapolis. You know, some people do get it after all. They they do understand what it means to be from here. It's it's weird because like my experience in Minneapolis is obviously kind of filtered through Prince for one, and also from uh, when I uh, came to the visit, you know, uh, came to visit Minneapolis, it was there were events going on, so you kind of, it's kind of the place is kind of colored by that. But it's it, I found the whole it was a very fascinating uh, place, just for the fact that it was April and I was delayed by a snowstorm. <laughs> like right, that, right. that that in itself was like i mean i have to stop over in cincinnati the night because there's a snowstorm in april so first time i landed in uh minneapolis it had snowed in april so it was just like okay i'm done this is too this is beyond metaphorical it's <laughs> actually right. lit this is literal now and 
you know, visiting those places and kind of North Minneapolis, getting an idea of the like the psychogeography of Minneapolis and First Avenue and Bunkers itself. That that was a really interesting place to visit. Um, was the Way Center still going when you were coming up in Minneapolis? The Way like Center, that, the Way Center, where all the uh, Battle of the Bands were happening with oh like, uh, flight time and. Up in North, I think it's up in North Minneapolis. Yes, it is. Um, uh, no, I wasn't, and I never been a part of that. My my um, formative years were spent at Bunkers and Whiskey Junction. Um, Prince didn't really like coming to Whiskey Junction. It had a lot of. Um, it was smaller and it was very bright. In the cl- there was a lot of um, what do you call those lights, like beer sign lights, uh, ne- neon, neon lights. Yeah, a lot of neon, a lot of brightness. So even when it was dark, the club was bright. And Prince didn't like that. Um, Sheila used to come. Sheila used to come in there. There were several uh, players that would come and watch the the men who eat out that band on Sunday night, which was Michael and Sonny and or Michael and Doug Nelson and Steve Cherwan, Billy Franzi, a lot of yeah. real staple Minneapolis players. Um, but Bunkers was a special place, and it was special because it was it was smoky and it was crowded and it was Monday and Tuesday nights when no one had anything going on. And you get in the doldrums of winter. You get in the middle of December or the the middle of January and that's where everyone was and wanted to be. And, and that was a special place. Um, so it, it had as much to do with the Minneapolis music scene as, as any one particular studio or one artist. I was, I like bunkers. The first time I saw it was like, as I'd flown in, like I said, it had been like this April snow that had like blizzard that had shut the airport. And I was thinking I got to bunkers and there was like this kind of handful of people there because there was snow drifts at the door. And I was just like, people are still uh, people are still coming out and they're playing like this band is because it was Dr. Mambo's combo mm-hmm. and it was it was Sonny Michael and Billy and Margie Cox and and it was just like these guys are playing like it's the biggest stage they've ever played and they are you know like they're doing like three hour sets and I was just like this is something else this is these this there's this kind of inherent love for music in this building there it kind of it still had that felt for me as somebody was visiting in any way yeah and they've done they've they're still doing that that gig and they've done it forever and the the players have died and moved on and changed and mm. the the roll call is different but um they certainly have ingrained in them and all the players in that band have that history in them now i'm not going to say that they're fresh and that they're doing things differently every week. Um, I know that they've been on cruise control for a long time as well, in all candor. Um, the set list doesn't change much. They don't challenge themselves. They haven't tried to um, take it to another level. It's just sort of been at a level. And, you know, that's just the way life is. You know, we, cert- we there was a time and a period where that was a really special place and a special band. And now that time has sort of moved on. For Prince fans coming to Minneapolis, they come there to see the combo. They come in one night. And they, yeah. they get really moved by that experience. But I can tell you, week to week, the show was very much the same. And the set list was very much the same. And that's not unlike your favorite artist. So whatever, whoever your favorite artist is, in this case, Prince, the show was this, roughly the same night to night. It's just that with somebody special like Prince, you every night is a little different for a little different reason. And yeah. they know how to reach back and get just that little something extra for for each city it's really quite um quite stunning to be a part of something like that actually contrasting my favorite art uh, one of my favorite artists which is prince obviously but the uh, my other favorite artist is madonna 
like I, I love them equally for very different reasons, different musicality, but both they have a feel and a uh, meaning, a different kind of meaning to me. And I know that Madonna shows are more akin to theater or circus. Yes. And it, it's the same every, you know, like it's pretty much the same every night. There's, there's too many moving pieces for that kind of improvisation that Prince can produce. And also Madonna's musicality is of a different kind of process. She She's good at like double tracking vocals and hitting the mark. I was just kind of wondering how does the process of show, specifically, because was it the reinvention tour that you were? Uh, uh, I was part of the, was it American Life? That sounds right. Yeah. That would be that would be the reinvention tour, like two thousand and three into two thousand. Yeah, that's right. It was the American Life was the album. Okay, yeah, it was got this, it. Yeah, she, where she comes up doing Vogue, standing on her head. Yes, yes. And there's that amazing Beast Within kind of intro. So that is weirdly enough, you like were doing sound the first night I saw Prince and the first night I saw Madonna because those are the one night alone and reinvention of the first times I ever saw both those artists. So. Thank you for the sound in the room. You really gave me an experience both those nights. And, they, and they're very different artists. You know, they're they're two of the um, of the bigger artists I've mixed, and they have a very different approach. Um, the Madonna's approach was a regimentation, and very even. I had very little um, and needed very little interaction with her. Um, yeah. Stuart was her, Stuart Price was her musical director at that time. And he, yeah. Stuart knows his stuff. Like he had, a, he had a vision. He had an oral vision yeah. of exactly what he wanted. And it was easy for me. It was a little bit more, um, synthy and it was a little more a uh, stewardy, you know, Stuart yeah. is a great producer. And so he knew what he wanted. There was um, very, very little interaction that I needed to be done with the artist myself. And the show was very much the same all the time. Yeah. Um, and that's her style. Prince couldn't have survived like that. It would have killed him yeah. slowly inside. It needed to be different. It was more on the edge. It was more, um, the, the risk of failure is greater when you take things, you know, when you extend, when you extend, uh, uh versions of songs and you yeah. call out audibles and things like that. And that's what I like being a part of. Cause it reminds me of why we do things live, but there is something to be said for a show like Madonna or like Gaga, where there is where there where the show or Ame show in, in tai, Taiwan when I mixed that this year, that is very much the same night to night. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's a more curated uh, experience, but not less important. It's, it's still important. And it's important in that, in those cases, it's important that it's curated to a yeah. certain level. Is, is there a preference sort of a preference for yourself of what type of show you would be doing then? Would you, would the Prince approach be the one that sort of stimulates you the most or would a structured show in certain ways be a different kind of gig with other positives that you wouldn't necessarily automatically assume? Um, I guess if, you, if we were going to stretch that example and pull it out all the way, it would be like a, a Broadway theater show is completely the same every night. That's what you want. Right. And even in engineering, you'd have your cues. There'd be a thousand cues in the show. Boom. When she says that line, change scenes and it'll turn on this mic and you're really hitting your marks. Um, that would be the extreme. Pulling back from that, it would be like Gaga, like Madonna, like Katy Perry, like Taylor Swift, like Ame, where the show is pretty much the same every night. You go all the way to Prince, which would be at, as far as high end shows would be 
very can be very different. He can just skip songs, go to another song, call it audible, go into B flat where I know, Oh, here comes purple rain. You know, where there's has to be a greater understanding. My preference is somewhere in the middle. I do like preparation. I'm preparing for a December, January run with a new artist named, uh, she's not a new artist. She's a very established, very popular artist, uh, named Jolin Tsai and in Taiwan, but I'm doing all the legwork now. I'm learning all the music now. I'm, doing all the uh, administrative stuff for my position, which is input lists and planning on the sound system and planning all that out. And I like that. That's regimented. It's very, um, very structured. Uh, Joe Lynn's show is very structured in how it goes down. There's lots of video, moving parts, possible danger. There's, you know, elevators. There's things that you have to be really aware of mm-hmm. when things are moving on stage. I kind of like things in a regimented way, but I do like that musicians are able to stretch out. The same question would be applicable to a musician. Do you like to stretch out on stage? Do you like to run a structured show where you're just playing parts and don't get the spotlight? I think both serve in different ways and I I enjoy them both. I do miss, I have to say, I miss mixing Prince. I miss him because, uh, I guess from a selfish standpoint, because I was given so much leeway to do what I wanted with effects, to get creative, to do things to his voice that had never been done with octave with effects and, and, um, or him missing a pedal and me being right there to put the echo on, uh, first, I could never take the place of your man having it ready. I knew one night he would miss it. One night he missed it. I hit it. I did the effect for him. And after the show, he was like, good looking out. Thanks for doing that. And I was like, yeah, I miss that because that is less in my world than it ever has been. So I miss him. I like them both. And I, I miss, uh, I miss, the Prince style. I suppose you're part of a very special group of people, really, in yeah. terms of like front of house engineers that have mixed Prince. I'm curious, have you ever had any interactions with other front of house engineers who've mixed Prince and ever sort of compared notes or stories or anything like that? Anything? I've heard the stories. Um, my friend Denny mixed Prince for his um, Las Vegas residency. Right. And Denny's a really good engineer and he, um, and had a really good mix on the desk when I got to it. Uh, Prince called me up and wanted me to come out and just talk to Denny. He didn't want me to take over, but he wanted me to sort of just have a talk with him about what he was doing and how he was treating Prince's vocal and how things were. So it wasn't, he wasn't, it was a little nebulous. He did, Prince didn't want me to tell him he was doing anything wrong, but he wanted me to inject a little bit of that attitude and aggressiveness uh, is what the word Prince said. He's not, or no, he said, he's not fearless. That's what he said. So he wanted me to inject a little bit of aggression into his attitude so that he was take, took a little more chance, but Prince oddly didn't want me to mix that. And actually uh, in all candor, I was busy at the beginning of the Vegas thing doing something else. So I couldn't do that even if he had asked me, but um, I was quite happy to come out and meet Danny and work with him and just say, Hey, you know, take a chance here or do this, or um, don't make that so staid, like reach out a little bit or follow him on these breakdowns and really you know, it, it's that engineers wouldn't take what they did differently. I'm taking your question, reformulating a little. What I did differently than other engineers is that I was always knew the music super well, as well as the band, certainly. Um, and sometimes be, and sometimes better because I'd say, hey, this happens here. And they go, no, no, man, we're not playing it like that. Or Prince would say, we're not doing that. I go, OK. So I was always trying to keep it kind of true. Um, I knew what the true version is. I knew what the version we were doing live. And I don't think 
as good of engineers as Prince had at my position when I wasn't there on the times that I wasn't there, yeah. it's that they they didn't have a feel. They didn't have the understanding of Prince and what he would want to do innately. Just mm-hmm. you had to sort of, well, this wouldn't be cool. He wouldn't want to do this. Let's not do that. I sort of always had the feel about what he Prince would want. I had the best feel for that. Um, Rob Colby, uh, Cubby, back in the day, Cubby had a good feel for it. And I was sort of, as I've said, I sort of ran, I was running laps on a track that Cubby built, you know, Cubby built yeah. a certain, uh, a certain level of expectation. And I had to meet and exceed that on my level. I met that level and I exceeded it. And then Prince started to release stuff that I actually did as records, which is unheard of in the industry. And that's a testament to knowing what's going to happen, knowing what's coming next, having a good feel for it. And I've been able to take that skill set that I've amassed on prints and mixing prints and then make it applicable, apply it to other artists to their benefit. I, I, I did a lot of that for Lady Gaga, a lot of it for Scissor Sisters, a lot of it for The Fray, a lot of it for a lot of artists and just say, no, that's not cool. Like this would be better. Duran Duran, that was a big one. They let me basically rearrange the set list. They wanted to know my input. I said, you have to do Union of the Snake. You've got to start with this. You can't do Wild Boys too close to View to a Kill because those are your two big production songs and they, they're too similar. So we got to spread those apart. And they really listened. And at one point I was I, I was looking around me and those five were just listening to me sort of rearrange their set list. And let's, those two are the same key. We got to spread those out. And I looked up and I went, oh, I'm being able to, to like be, wow. I'm, running a, I'm running a risk here but I'll take it. I'll take it as a challenge. I was able to sort of be Prince for them, yeah. right? Yeah. I was able to go, this would be cooler if you did this. This would work better if you did this. Don't you agree? And they get, yeah, yeah, I, we agree. I say, cool. So I was able to take a lot of that, what I learned from Prince and apply it to other artists. I'm really happy to have done so. Couple couple of things from all that. There's lots to unpick there. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Is your tiptoeing into show direction yeah. over there? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, first of all, a completely beautiful level of trust there scotty because i think for somebody like prince you 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 mentioned you use the word nebulous which is a lovely word to use articulating what you were saying there because essentially he was putting you potentially into a fairly awkward situation but the fact that he knew you'd be able to handle that and your your advice was the advice he needed but he knew he had somebody else doing it who you knew i, I think that's that speaks to massive amounts of trust trust in terms of yeah knowing that you'd be saying the right thing and saying it the right way within the context of a potentially open situation. I think that's really amazing to be perfectly honest. And the <laughs> Duranda, I, I, I absolutely, I, I, I'm picturing it in my head. These guys just sort of sat around <laughs> you listening to you go through their set list. That is fantastic. I think I picked up on one of the other podcasts I'd listened that you've spoken on that um, you it, was it a little bit of a conscious thing to do some different types of music because you'd worked with a bunch of uh, like a, a particular genre of artists and you felt you didn't want to be sort of the, the R&B soul guy necessarily and you just wanted to prove, you know, your skill sets here and there. I was just I was just going to say, how how sort of left of centre would you be prepared to go with acts? Or is there anything that's a little bit further and a little bit more alternative that you would like to have a go at or anything like that? That's interesting. That's a good question too. I, um, I made a decision in 2003 to add some white acts to my resume because I feel like I was being pigeonholed as I was like, Oh, he's the soulful white R and B engineer, you know, and anytime you get typecast, um, it's good to throw a curveball. 
Um, and so, and in that year alone, I added Madonna, Donny Osmond, Duran Duran, and Brian Ferry. So that those are four biggies to add in one year, in one calendar year. And so I was quite happy with that. And that was enough uh, to, to swing me over and like, oh, this guy can do a lot of stuff. You know, I can do a Donnie was sort of Donnie Osmond, sort of a Broadway approach with some soul, you know, and then there was Madonna, who was that Madonna and Brian Ferry, who was super creative guy. And I have I had um, almost less knowledge of his material than anyone with whom I worked. I had to study it very quickly and very uh, studiously and and like become a student of Roxy Music and and where Roxy Music came from, not just their music, but where why they came um, and where Brian came from. And um, putting that all together and Duran Duran was the icing on the cake because that I, that's, that's a group that I loved. I knew all the material. I knew every part of those songs. But yeah, there was a conscious effort at changing how I was viewed in the industry and it sort of worked out for me. But I, I guess I would like to, I don't think I'm a good enough engineer to mix classical not that classical isn't something I've done. I've done huge string sections. I've done solo per, uh, piano performances. I've done a lot of um, mic technique on those faraway instruments so that it's not so close or into a direct box, right? I've done some some creative engineering. Um, I, I don't think I'm on the level of an engineer that is following the score and can tell, you know, hear a take and say that, no, someone in the viola you know, so-and-so yeah. play your part. Mm -hmm. And that part of the viola section was off. I'm not good enough to do that. Um, so I don't go there much like Prince. I just won't do it. But I really like some of the bands that I hear coming up now. I hit up a band called Video Age. I said, why am I on Instagram? I DM'd them and I said, why am I not mixing you? Like they are a band that is just awesome. Video <laughs> Age. They have a song called Aerostar that I heard on a radio station here in Minnesota called WTIP. It's a way up north and um, they have a great program director. And I listened to that song and I, I turned it up and I said, this is old Prince. And it wasn't, it was this group from, you know, just a few years ago, a song, and it was an awesome song and an awesome group. And they're, I think they're four guys and they're from like Denver or Louisiana or somewhere. I don't know where they're from, but, yeah. but um, they would really benefit from my knowledge. And I would, I would love to, I'm in that elder statesman part of my career, right? Where I, <laughs> Nice. I sort of is, is not, I take it very seriously, the kind of effect I can have on artists and how they present their show. And I try to only give advice um, when it's asked for, and also when it can really benefit them. And it's like a no brainer that it will be a benefit to them. Yeah, You're very much a part of everything that he was in a sense, it, it, yeah. the way that things can concentrize out in terms of experience and knowledge. It's lovely yeah. to think that you'd, that you <sighs> Confidence is not the right thing to say because obviously you're a professional doing a job. But the fact that you can sit there and say they would benefit from my knowledge, that's like really pure and from a very, very good place, I think. Yeah. And I, I and you said something about a show director earlier. If I really had any nuts, I would give up engineering and become a show director, become someone who is creative in that process. I don't, I'm certainly not on the level of creativity in the genesis of a show the way Roy Bennett is who worked with Prince yeah. years ago on yeah, Roy yeah. yeah. so Roy is a, a, a legend at what he does because he thinks he is every bit an artist as any artist with whom he's worked so he can say here's what we're going to do or what do you think of this or they say yeah. something and he can take that ball and their idea and make it from the genesis make a whole concept of a show I'm 
there are several, there are lots of people who are good at that. Roy just happens to be, you know, like the best or one of the best. And it's nice to, I, I don't think I could do that for someone, but I do know what looks good and feels good from the audience perspective out front. So I don't have enough guts to give up what I do and become a show director, but I certainly could be a, a producer of sorts. Prince told me once, I think it was, yeah, it was in 2002. It was on a break on the one night alone tour where he said, you're overqualified for what you're doing. I mean, he was very directed at how he said it. He said it in studio C to me as we were farting around with the Lin machine, the LM one, he was, I was getting a tutorial on the Lin drum LM one drum computer from Prince for, for over an hour. And it, and at some point before he left, he, cause we were by the door, he said, you know, you're overqualified for what you're doing. You should be producing and give up what you're doing. And I, I was like, Oh yeah, man. Uh, and I sort of, you know, ah, shucks that comment. I wish I had listened to him and had the guts to, Oh, you know, just like have a leap of faith. And that's where real gain comes from is from either the last few reps of a hard set or um, if when you're working out or the leap of faith and you're actually giving something up and going for something. It's never been my dream to be a show director or a, a producer of sorts or a producer in the studio. I know I would be fabulous at it. I haven't been asked to do as much. And let's face it, when you get me as a front of house engineer, you also get the benefit of those sort of um, thoughts for the same price, right? So I can say, yeah. it, and I don't say anything uh, there, but if an artist says, how are you feeling out front? How's this doing? Baby Daddy from Scissor Sisters says, Scotty, how do you feel about the show? You've seen it for a month now, WWPD. And I said, what do you mean? He said, what would Prince do? And I said, oh, well, he would do this because Baby Daddy is a huge yeah. Prince fan. And I said, well, he would do this and he would do that and he would make this song go into this song. And once he lit the fuse, I gave them a bunch of ideas. And I worked with Cole, their great playback engineer, and we sort of put a show together for them. And I, I was able to sort of do that for Jake and Baby Daddy because they they didn't necessarily, they were just kind of riding on what had been done before. And we didn't have a full show put together at that time. So it was it was nice to be able to, um, it's nice to be able to give those sort of uh, ideas to people when they want them and when they ask for them it's quite an honor to do that and it's it's a really lovely way because we always think of the legacy of prince in terms of records in terms of records directly influencing uh an artist listening to a record by prince and then influencing it by that but there's also the kind of like the influence you say it's like even if the even if the artist had never been influenced by prince never listened the benefit of your ear being kind of trained in that world and your kind of experience being trained through that world and kind of the mentorship of that is another way in which that river of inspiration river of ideas flows and i think that's another way that's a kind of beautiful way to another way in which like kind of legacies live on yeah and that, that's uh, something that uh, i like the way you say that it's quite lovely how you said that and if i'm doing anything now in it's in being of service continuing to be of in service to prince and because i considered him the leader and i was you know part of that he always believed in being equal in that we were all doing this together. I got a lot of that influence from him. In other words, I don't work for you. I work with you. You can't do what I do. You won't yeah. ever be as good a live sound engineer as I am. 
I have way too many years and way too many experiences in way too many rooms with way too many artists with way too many microphones for you to even come close to the success that I've had. Let me work with you to give you that and we can all work together. That's what Morris Hayes brought to Prince uh, like no other is it's what other players like the revolution early in his career and things that Lisa, like Wendy, Bobby, Matt, Mark, what they brought to the table early had an influence on Prince. I have the same one now moving forward in service of Prince. When I do a great job for Ame or Wang Li Hom or Joe Lin Tsai, when I'm over in Asia, and that's predominantly where I work now, is when I do that for them and I can give them good ideas and give them good confidence and do it all in, with a good spirit and a sense of humor and no attitude, you know, when I can do that, I am living the spirit of Prince. Yeah. I am I am furthering that legacy in a different way. When you're listening to uh, specifically Ame, who I, ch- I, I think you'd mentioned before on another podcast, so I kind of checked out and was like, I was very impressed that there was a lot of, I was kind of imagining the tracks live and I was kind of getting kind of like the same air that, uh, not the same style, but Carpenter, the Carpenters had a lot of space for air to move. Yes, yes. And there was a smoothness and I kind of... S- heard that in what she does and i kind of was, was like kind of interested and there's like from a live sound point of view with different rooms and stuff i was like this this is an interesting place for you to place those kind of ears and influences on an artist like that especially when i don't speak mandarin um my mandarin's coming along but i don't i'm not fl- <clears throat> i'm not uh, fluent so having to take the sensibilities of what about what she is singing and go Wow, how can I, what is she singing about? How can I translate those emotions into actual mute moves on the desk, on the console, and make it do it? Does that part need more reverb? Does it need less? What is the sensibility of this song? I have to do one extra step that I've never had to do with artists in the West, which is translate all the lyrics and not just verbatim. I can't just go to Google Translate and do it. There's a way that that you write in Mandarin in Chinese that is very lovely that just can't really doesn't really make sense in a translation that is so heartfelt that would make people cry. And in Ame's shows and in Wang Li Hom's shows, and I imagine in Jo Lin's show, there are periods of the show that people are weeping at the show the way they would at Purple Rain when I saw them and the way I would cry during Purple Rain when I was mixing it. I see it in China and I see it in Taiwan and I see it in Japan, I see it in the East because people are really connected with the emotion of a song. I think actually more so than we are in the West. It's mm. um, there's a different spirit of the music, and it's really lovely. And I love being a part of that and and offering my Western sensibility, which is what a lot of artists in the East want. They want that Western sensibility, but I can still give the emotive content. I'm trying to ride that line of Western sensibility and and yeah. Eastern. Uh, motivational uh, uh, emotional content I think I without knowing what they're saying uh, and from what I've what has been explained to me you can hear the kind of path one of those interesting things uh, kind of within a lot of uh, at least Japanese music and culture is that kind of the spirit of ancestor worship so like kind of that in the reverb and in the pathos of Mm. slower songs that's another interesting uh, um, thing like when you're in control of reverb and saying that you're in in service of prince it's that kind of in an in a an arena of music that has kind of ancestor worship as part of 
the pathos, I think that's actually quite a another quite a beautiful connection. Yes, that we don't do in the West. We don't have that in the West. Our our countries are relatively young. Think of how the UK, the age of the UK is different from the age of the USA. Oh. Okay, now think now go back three thousand years to when the East, where everything started, and the, the kind of what family means is different. What what um, history means is different. And I have to be open and sensitive as a Westerner to come over and translate the emotive content, the player ability to the artist's uh, intention and uh, conceptual design and and make it sound not just how I want it to sound, but how people are ready to receive it. Mm. Um, I will say in the particular case of Ame, I mean, I had, I, I had a chance to, to meet with Lee Home uh, over in tai- Taipei when I was mixing Ame, I went and met with Lee Home, and he said, man, Scotty, other than Prince, you may not work with a more beautiful voice than Ame. And then I mixed her several days later. It was the first time I mixed her. And it was like mixing a color. Her voice was an actual color. And I got a color in mind. And it was this beautiful, rich, beige, like butterscotch caramel color. Her voice, if anyone wants to hear her, because listeners are like, who is that? And is she even popular? Yes, she's more popular than any American artist ever. She's more popular than Taylor Swift. Um, so is Lee Hum. So is Joe Lynn. They're, they're, the, the, the amount of people that are in that area of the world that are fans are so much more massive. Uh, Ame's voice, if you listen, so her name is spelled basically A-M-E-I. Ame, and you look up the song March, M-A-R-C-H, Ame, and listen to a song on, watch on YouTube or whatever, check out March, the song March. It's beautiful. And and she's just so, it's just, you just get lost. It's one of these voices, you get lost in her voice. I'm I'm eager to see what uh, Jolyn has in store. She's much more intentional. All of her stuff is very, she's like on par with Madonna or Gaga. I won't make that direct comparison, but she's, if the show is very theatrical and very visually based and very costume based, but she's someone who really cares about sound as well and musicianship. So that'll be an interesting challenge for me as well to work with such a visual element that the sound could be considered less than, but it's not. Jolene, I also got um, kind of like Nelly Furtado, Gwen Stefani kind sure. of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want a comparison to like right. name for name, but it's just to give the idea of the thing. But I was, you know, the kind of the way in which the vo- vocals work. It's yes. like, but yeah, Arme, I like, it's interesting that that voice of color as well is, um, it's that kind of Joni Mitchell as well. Mm. Like it's another voice that kind of comes in colors and, and definitely as all roads in this podcast do lead back to Prince. And he has, he had a whole palette of colors, he did, yes. You know, he could take you from a he could take you from a whisper to a shout. Not only in his range, but in the space of one song. That's why there's no reason to choose a favorite anything ever in life. I mean, I'm in my fifties. I don't I don't make that mistake anymore. I don't say this is my favorite thing. It, but one of the songs I'll say to which I could listen to every day for the rest of my life is the beautiful ones, because he takes you from this quiet lover. And it's just such a presented, it's just a voice that's being loving and a falsetto. By the end, he's screaming about whether she wants him or me. And he takes you on this 
vocally, there's no song of his that had such a wild um, the dichotomy of from to mm. that you get on that song. Um, it's a journey. It's a big journey. It really is a journey, that song. Sure. I think our um, Empty Room from C-Note comes close. Mm. Empty and And I've heard lots of uh, Empty Room played quite a few nights, and he gets quite close to that kind of range because it does start in that kind of, that delicate, it's aspirated tone. So it's a whisper yeah. tone. It comes from, yeah. there's no hard glottal stops. It's all aspirated and um, it's a lot, very breathy. And you're right. It does take you on that same kind of thing. And I'm actually uh, a, a little fun fact about that song is that anytime you hear the version with the big fat kick drum, the live version, yeah. that was, <clears throat> that was quite accidental. Um, he, we were playing, we were rehearsing the question of you and we didn't have a sample for the kick drum. Um, like it is on the record. On the record, the song, The Question of You, is a slowed down snare drum. So the kick is an actual Lin snare slowed down. And I didn't have that, we didn't have that ready. So I came up with an effect in my console, in my sound desk, that created the, that sort of sound. So when you hear Empty Room, it's only because we were rehearsing Question of You and he went into Empty Room and I started with that sound. And so I didn't want to take that sound off. So I just let it go. Wow. That's the right, the right move to make. So when you hear empty room on, on a record, it, it showed up on some best of record or something, you know, the empty room live 2002. Yeah. And that was my mix of it. And it's that kick drum is only because it was at, quite accidental, but I knew enough to not change it during the song. Happy accidents, oh. man. That's Happy right. Accidents. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Just one thing I, was, I wanted to ask that all this plethora of live music, consistent innovation, various styles, and so on and so forth. I read a, I read an interview or listened to, I can't remember, but Alan Leeds said that over his tenure of uh, sort of the road manager stuff, he was saying that were somebody ever to truly start digging through all the concerts that have been recorded you could sort of release a live anthology the likes of which would be just so you know so untouchable and and never never sort of to be repeated of, of consistent innovation and and different styles of music and and different um sort of ideas of tours and what have you uh, i know I, I i seem to remember you talking about on an, on another podcast about like over your tenure, all these dats that were going back to the vault and yes. so on and so forth. I mean, what would you, what would you feel? What would your feelings be about and towards that sort of product and presentation of a live, live anthology? Because that's one of the, one of the seeds that was planted indirectly in my head by Alan Lee's, which I've always thought, Oh my God, if they actually, if they actually did that specifically, and I appreciate this day, it's massively difficult because there is so many things that so many people want, but my word, that could potentially be huge. It could be huge. And um, no one really knew better than Alan because he was there during all that stuff. And Alan's a good friend. I, I, I appreciate his um, thoughts on that. He's a very thoughtful individual and he has a great sense as well about where Prince's place is in the history of, now there's a guy who really knows the history of music and especially the history of jazz music. And um, so you're talking to sort of a professorial understanding and knowledge of, the, of music history. And uh, so Alan would know where to place that. And I had kept up, I kept Alan up on things we were doing, even though he wasn't with Prince anymore and sort of what happened. 
And Alan was the one who proofread my liner note, my box set. I've never uh, said that before, but Alan, I wrote my box, my liner notes for the box set one night alone live. And I sent it to Alan and I said, what do you think? And he made a couple of corrections. Like, what do you mean this? And what year was that? And he sort of said, you need to straighten that out and figure that out. And da da da. And he sent it back. I fixed it and then I sent it to Prince and then Prince called the next day and loved it. So I have Alan to thank for helping me get my thoughts in order. Alan's, um, uh, assessment is correct. There would be a lot. And you, where I think that there would be a difference, where there would be a difference is in the, the after shows. That's where you saw a lot of the process of which Prince had. Um, it's during the after shows because he was free. He was free, truly free from the constraints of time at an, uh, at an arena. And, time and set list in a concert and lighting is dependent on you and sometimes video playback. And I had to know what was coming mix wise. Well, when we did these after shows, I'm sure very few of which were recorded at least through the board back in the day. But, um, on my watch, they were all recorded through the board. Uh, I have dat recordings of all of the after shows and I, and I turn them in. And so there are probably a hundred, you know, or more after shows that, wow. that, of uh, of dats that, were that are recorded and a, a lot of which showed up on, on, um, it ain't over, you know, the after shows. Um, and those were from, those are from different nights and different soundboards. And I think the sound is pretty similar. I mean, I made some, uh, I didn't know it was going to become a live uh, record. So I would have probably tried to match it a little better on a night to night basis, but the effect is there and it got done. And that shows a little of the difference in the artistry of the, even the mixing of it. But, um, I, I think there's a trove, a treasure trove, of things live after shows would be where I would focus my, my, I would put the laser dot on the forehead of the live after shows. That's where you want to go because that tells you a lot about how he thought, how he stretched out at will arrangements, his wow. solo, where he would take people in the solos, knowing he was going to take 192 bars for a solo instead of 32 bars, right? So he would, he just kind of, it, that was all feel and all off the cuff. And it really shows the musicianship of, of the band members. It very much shows the fearlessness that we all have toward the process of after shows. And um, that's where I would look. I would think that you would most appreciate the piano show, number one, the January 21st, 2016 piano show, both shows, first and second show. Any uh, talk I've had with the estate has been completely informal and off the record, but if, and when it does get uh, released, I will be a part of that uh, because there's only one or two people that can tell that story. Uh, myself, Kirk, uh, maybe John Gass, who engineered the final, I, I multi-tracked it and John had the final mix uh, in the studio with Prince. So there's only a few of us though, that can talk about the actual feel in the room other than the fans, which are important. I think the fans should be a part of, talking about what happened in the room on January 21st, 2016, what that was like to be one of the thousand or 1500 people that experienced that in the room enveloped in that feeling cloaked in that yeah. sort of majestic feeling that you had in the room. And we all knew something special was happening. Mm -hmm. We just didn't know that it would be over so soon, which makes the intensity even more so. So other than the Jan 21, 2016 show, I think the after shows is where I would look as a fan to to really give me the feel for what Prince was like. Oh, I 100% I agree. I remember going to like 
when one one night alone came to the UK, my first time seeing Prince. I went to two of the three nights, and after the third night, they did an after show at the Marquee, and it was my, I was as an avid confession bootleg listener for years and years and years. It was always the kind of thing you have to get to an after show. You have to get to an after show, and I remember you know being there at the Marquee and thinking, okay, I hope this is as good as you know as it always sounded. And I I remember they started off improvising, and it was kind of part of my thing is like they're improvising to sound check the room because, you know, they haven't had time to properly sound check. And it's just like, but unless you were kind of observing from that point of view, or I'd been in a band or something, you would never know, like from an audience member, you kind of, you only realize it as a secondary point. It's just like this band. And it's not just Prince, it's the whole band, um, especially that particular band. There's some amazing musicians in there. Renato, Ronda, uh, obviously Maceo Parker, John Blackwell as well. Uh, it's like uh, this band was sound checking, but giving you an improvised musical experience, not just going one, two, one, two. And I was, I remember being completely floored by that alone, even before they went into what would be the after show with songs and stretching out. I just think 10 minutes of just kind of going, are our levels right? But the audience is getting a musical experience. That's, was... That was very purposeful. If I can interject here, that that was on purpose because Prince never wanted people. Oh God, he didn't even want to be subject to, okay, a kick drum, do, do, do. That, that completely bored him and that was unmusical. So I never let him be around during that process. He knew we needed to sound check for me to get the mix happening. So he would just start playing and he didn't care if it sort of happened, you know, and just sort of formulated from the ground up. He was just going to play and I would get things up and running and I would sort of give a thumbs up or he would know when it's, when it was cool. Cause he'd look out and I'd sort of say, yeah, we're going, we're already going. And I'd be recording and we would just sort of make it happen. It's, you know why? Cause it's sexier that way. It's yeah. just sexier. You don't want to subject people to going two one two. Um, it's just, um, it's it's not cool and it's not sexy and Prince was always cool and sexy. So he knew even how to get sound checked in a room with people yeah. already in the room. Now, if, if yeah. the crowd hadn't been in the room, he might, he might have said, are you sound checked yet? And I would go, no, uh, John, give me the kick, give me the snare. But, but with people there, it was all a show and he was going to make that part of the show no matter what, even if you heard the levels kind of turn up as I went. So that was all on purpose. That was all by design. And Prince was, I even teach musical directors nowadays. And I'll say teach because they don't know it. If a band is jamming, right, during during rehearsal somewhere, I'll say, you know, I'll say, hey, for your consideration, you might want to say on the one. And then the band stops on the one. Because otherwise they just go, okay, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. And she or he will say, hold on, hold on. And then it just sort of ends. And it's not cool. And it's not musical. And I think WWPD, well, he would tell that musical director, say on the one, the band will hit on the one. And then you're keeping everyone in a really highly stylized musical frame of mind. That's just a good idea. I'm sorry if you don't agree with it. That's a good idea. So when you, when you do that and then you further it along, well, what's the next step after that? Well, the next step after that is 
the the artist being able to musically direct the band and say on the one you know and step this time the artist can go like maxwell did kick drum on the one and and so maxwell got that vibe and he started to do that after i told daryl his uh daryl diaz his great musical director hey daryl you should do this then we start doing it and then maxwell felt that prince in him right mm-hmm. and that that and so he started to do it and then he could start to conduct the bands and do hits and i'm not saying every the end game, the end result in everybody's tour is that they sound like Prince, but it is a more musical way to rehearse is just keep people, keep people focused, keep them, keep things on the beat, keep in tempo musicians. A lot of time it's like herding cats and you need to, you need to, you need to keep them, you you need to keep them musical because what they'll do is they'll say, okay, hold on, hold on. And as soon as they say, hold on, a guitar player will play a little bit longer and a bass player will do a little run yeah, and a drummer yeah. will go. And you go, when, oh, you, when really the musical director oh, just wants to say, stop, you know, everyone stop. I'm thinking now I have to think this through. And it's a very efficient and cool way of doing that. Now, is that taught at, at, at in, is that taught at Berkeley? No. Is it taught at any sound school you could go to? No, it's an experiential thing. And I have it. And if that's the only thing I could ever do to push Prince forward is have people stop on the one so that a musical director or an artist can stop and have quiet and think. But unfortunately, musicians just keep playing. And so what's cool about that is I try and keep musicians even in tempo as far as I did this with the revolution. There's nothing worse than having tracks playback and you don't know what song is coming. So in the musician's ears, in their inner monitors, you hear this voice and you hear a click go one, two, three, four. And then you don't, what song is it? Well, you're not sure. I know what the next song on the set list is, but I don't know if that's going to be that song. I don't have that confidence. So what I would do is go in tempo. I recorded the names of all the songs. So I would say it would, you would hear me go, the musicians on stage, hear me at my voice in the beginning of every song, go 1999, three, four, right. And so everything is musical. The tempo is musical. The way I say the title of the song is in rhythm. Everything makes sense. And it's, it keeps musicians musical. You always want to keep artists and musicians in a state of musicality and not in technicality. Yeah. And they don't teach that at any schools. That's just something I have to pass on. I love the, the, the idea of the organic proliferation of a technique Prince used oh, yes. through, yeah. through you. Is really That's nice. exactly right. Yeah, I tell you, my own spin on it. And I hope we're not going the deep dive on tech talk, but hopefully Prince fans can hear this and appreciate. I see Prince had an effect on Scotty. He decided to take that, put his own spin in an engineering standpoint and help keep musicians more musical. And I can't tell you the number of bands that are out there that have my voice. Even when I leave the gig, it's my voice still announcing the playback tracks because I've said to a programmer, to a playback engineer, here, here's all the titles of the song in tempo. Put them in the front of every song. It's mm-hmm. better. It's it's wiser. It's more musical. It's more confident. It'll be more confident for them to know what song's coming. It's 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 really in a in service of Prince that I do that. Fantastic. And also that on the one allows silence to be invited back in as a musical element as well. And as a band member, yes, exactly. Yeah, as right. a band member, that's a good and, catch. And don't worry about going too technical. If you want to talk ohms and hertz, it's all good with us. We're all good for that. Go on, I've got I, I've I've got a curious one that came up in, in, in the last one. 
again, talking about sort of all these all these Prince tours, just out of sheer curiosity, Scotty, if you could pick one of the tours that you had nothing to do with, perhaps it'd be one in the 80s, perhaps even one in the 70s, I don't know. If you could just all of a sudden appear in front of the, the, the mixing desk on one of those tours, which one would it be? That's a really good question. Maybe Love Sexy. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I found that to be such a beautiful tour to see as a as an audience member i saw it here in st paul or minneapolis wherever he played here and i had really good seats and i saw the tour and i, I saw purple rain as well um but i think that love sexy would have created would it was made for my skill set i would be able to take my skill set now go back and make that sound absolutely phenomenal and really kind of place some of the elements where they are around the stage and really do with today's technology Man, I, and that's why I always, um, on a side note, I always wanted to. I fought, for, I fought Prince for my ability to keep a digital console, because I felt that using a digital, and for people who don't know, a digital console, the soundboard, is something that gave me very precise echoes, gave me very precise reverbs, made me be able to change songs and have that song sound like it did on the record, whereas an older analog console things may have sort of a middle sound. They, the, the whole concert would have one sort of sound. Each song sounded like the next as far as mix went. I had a countless number of encounters and arguments, disagreements, I'll say, with Prince about using an analog desk. He wanted me to use analog because he thought the sound was better. I wanted to use digital not only because it was more precise and his music at that point has become legacy music. So I needed to make it sound how it did exactly on the records, but also that I was trying to keep him on the edge of technology, at least in the live setting where he, we could do things that we just simply were not practical. I reached the limit on one night alone live of stretching. And I did that on an analog desk. That box set is done. The first two discs anyway, no, actually the whole, all three discs on that box set were done on an analog desk. I did things which were basically uh, revolutionary as far as pushing things to the point of being able to do things so that they were sounded different every song and could, but still have an analog desk that I felt that the change to, to digital console that would provide all the musicality, all the resolution, all the practicality of the ability to go from one country to the next and use a different board, but have the same mix. I felt it was more important to the crowd and to the music itself than it was a hindrance by having air quotes, mm. not as good a sound. I don't mm. buy that for one second. And the reason that Prince didn't want to use a, a digital desk is because he was afraid of having to learn how to mix on a digital console. That's the bottom line. And he didn't want to have to walk over and figure out to go to a different screen to turn it up in his monitors, right? He was comfortable around an analog console. He didn't want me to use it. I'm glad I did because I think it made a difference in the precision and the sound. And you listen to 2004 Musicology. Um, when he did Whole Lot of Love, and I did that long echo on his guitar that kept descending. Wah, 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 wah. You just, there's no way we could have done that song followed by Take Me With You and have me be able to switch in time to make that change occur. It just wouldn't happen. So um, I, I, I kind of got lost in the weeds here, but, and not to be too technical, I, I fought for the things I needed to, to keep the artistry that I was doing out front alive. The same way you wouldn't tell Morris what keys to play 
And I didn't, as I told Prince, Hey, I'm not telling you what guitar to play. You know, please don't tell me what, you know, what soundboard to play. Cause that's all, after all, it is a musical instrument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think the, uh, it's kind of, it was just kind of a patience. I, I, Prince moving too quickly to move, learn something new with new technology or do you think it was kind of like there's that kind of thing i i look so good at everything i don't want to look bad yes that's what it was it's i mean it's it's not a you know it doesn't take a degree in psychology to know that prince didn't want to be bad at anything he what he didn't want to do is have to take a lesson from me he didn't want me to have to go okay and you want to get to the eq okay touch this screen and then you can go and see i can do it right here that would that was never going to happen in his world ever. That's just not Prince. So he just simply gave up because I was relentless in my insistence upon using a digital console. And when I did that, he just kind of gave up and let me do what I want. And then he started to see, oh, you can do the same thing on the, he said, do you have that effect from 2004, that echo effect? I said, yeah. And he said, can you put that on me in the beginning of the, the show, meaning the piano show? And I said, sure. And I literally had the same program programmed and I had that effect ready for him. Um, and it's, it's called whole lot of love. And so I loaded that effect. And so he went at the piano show. He starts the whole show by, by saying Paisley, he goes, Paisley, 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 Paisley. Right. And he started talking and the words kept, uh, as every time they echoed, they were lower. That's a good way of explaining it. And there's no way we could have done that on any old piece of gear on any old analog desk. It's something that had to be done. And I know that he, he started to ask for things from me that I had done digitally. So he knew there was a benefit there and he knew he didn't, I would outlast him in an argument. I would just insist on it. And so he, he knew when to give up and just, but he didn't want to be taught. That's the important thing. He didn't want you to show him a baseline. He didn't want you to show him a drum lick. It was that wasn't Prince, so he just sort of went with it. I remember having that effect, that de- lowering delay effect, on an old uh, Zoom unit that I used to have as like my first like guitar multi effects unit. Yeah. But I'd, like I've I've only ever heard of it on digital. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. it's they did have an analog piece of gear, um, a Yamaha. I I discovered it in Yamaha. And it, it was on one of their effect units, and it's called HQ Pitch, and um, and it's uh, and all it does is it gives you the the echo time and then it gives you the modulation. Do you want to go down a half step every time or a whole uh, step? And I, if I remember correctly with Prince, I went a whole step every time. So it made a quicker descent into what we wanted. And it worked on Whole Lot of Love. And it was quite accidental. I had that ready. Um, so when he played Whole Lot of Love, I did it live on the fly in a real gig and sort of went for it and wasn't afraid. And I did it on his guitar and um, he ended up where when I knew it was the last one that he was going to do on the guitar, I turned the echo unit so that it would regenerate and keep going. And then he set the guitar down and took his hanky out and pronounced the guitar dead and put it on the guitar and then turned to John and John counted off, take me with you. And I hit recall on take me with you and all the effect went away and we went in to take me with you. And it was after the show, he wanted to talk to me and he was like, good looking out. He used to say that good looking out on that effect. And I was like, cool, man. So I knew that was going to stay. And that was just a sort of a, oh, you know, moment of fearlessness that I had. Like I can do this. This is just like bunkers. He used to say that. He used to say, he used to say just like bunkers, Scotty. 
And he's the one that actually made me, Prince is responsible himself for making me unafraid to mix in huge crowds, 80,000, 90,000, 300,000 people. I always treat it like bunkers. I treat it like I'm aggressive. I'm going to go for it. We're going to make this special to the people this night. And it doesn't matter how many people are here. It's just a bigger living room. He used to say that. So just like Bunker Scotty. So what he was trying to do was develop in me this attitude of yeah. it's all the same. You just have to, people say, how do you mix? Do you mix differently in, in clubs and theaters than you do in stadiums? And I say, nope, it's the same attitude, same aggression, same, you know, you have to leave it there. You know, you have to leave it yeah. all, spend it all there. I was going to say, is there any crowd that, you know, I think you just answered it. It's like, was there any room crowd that you were ever intimidated by? But uh, it sounds like it's all bunkers. <laughs> oh, they, they used to be, uh, there used to be an early in my career. I used to get nervous before every show. And then one show in particular, a Maxwell show in uh, Louisiana, uh, New Orleans called, um, what is it called? Essence Fest. Essence Fest. Maxwell, I don't know what year, 96, 97, whatever. We did Essence Fest. And I remember not getting nervous before the show. It just never came. I was waiting for it. It never came. I started mixing the show. I got done with the show. I packed up my knapsack or whatever. And I thought, oh, like, wow, that was weird. And I think it that started to become, I became confident in the process of it unfolding and occurring. And I could still mix with attitude and it, not have to suffer the nerves. I never get nervous now. Yeah. I actually enjoy when I do on the rare moments where I go, ooh, I had to do playback for the revolution once their, their playback and monitor engineer couldn't make a show. So I said, well, I'll do playback of the tracks from front of house. And it was in LA at the ACE hotel. All the celebrities were there. I had <laughs> friends behind me. I had Fred Maya and I had all these celebrity friends that I had there and I had to do playback, something I'd never done from front of house. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm doing it. And I felt a little twinge. Like there was a little moment where I was like, am I going to screw this up? And I didn't. And it was fine. And um, I just celebrated that little nervousness by having a, several glasses of wine after the show. So. <laughs> Did you do the Grammys? Like, because there was the big uh, the big Grammys thing in LA where like Sheila Revolution, Mavis Staples. and Yes, I did. I did of... do that. Uh, Princess oh, as well. Of... Uh, not to discount yeah. Maya Rudolph and Gretchen Lebrun yeah. and their band. So the Revolution oh, yeah. backing up, backing up um, uh, Maya and Gretchen. And that was great fun. That was... Um, that was actually the last show the revolution has done. You know, there hasn't been a show since then. And that was right when the pandemic was hitting. So, but that was quite, quite fun because you had Terry and Jimmy there and I haven't seen them in a long time. And, and you had a lot of, uh, you had a lot of people there that we had a lot in common. It's good to see yeah. Morris and Jill again and good to see band members that I hadn't seen in a while. It was, there was a little cathartic, it was a little cathartic as well. And yeah. to be, to be there and especially with uh, Gretchen and Maya's band, it was a lot of fun and, and the revolution playing, you know, and being able to show off what we've done and how good it sounds, how good they sound as a band still to this day um, was quite uh, fun. I was lucky to be there on out that night. It was a fun night and it did sound great in the room again. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's different shows like that in the Grammys. Uh, anything having to do with union, usually you have a union engineer and, and we can't touch the boards. Right. Roy, Roy was there uh, art directing and, and show directing that for the revolution and princess as well. But Roy couldn't touch anything. I couldn't touch the soundboard. Oh. Nobody could touch them. And it's a different process. So you, we have to get good at also translating our our attitude toward engineers that are, are going to be actually touching the soundboard. It's often that way in TV and broadcast where you can't touch anything. Um, 
that's just another period of adjustment that we have to make. And um, I certainly could have thought that in the room, it could have sounded quite a bit better than it did for, for princess and the revolution. But um, you kind of have to just take it as it comes and, and get your victory on the other side. You can't win them all. It's also hard to like for people that didn't know who went there that uh, with the TV film and some of the songs were recorded twice right in between acts there's a TV shows so it's um it's hard to keep that energy of a live show going in yes. some of those kind of contexts but uh... well Prince always fought for it on TV shows if you notice uh, when Prince did Arsenio anytime he did the Tonight Show he always had them light it like a concert and he personally would go to the lighting engineer and the lighting director at the TV show and have a meeting with them and say, listen, and they were always in deference to him. And in regard, like they're always a little nervous, candidly speaking. And he would say, I want you to light this like a concert. We are not doing a TV show today. We are doing a concert and you're going to light it like a concert. Do you remember what it's like to do that? And they go, yes, sir. And he goes, yes, sir. Okay. Well, let's see it. I want darkness because he considered darkness an element. And so does Roy. And I think Prince kind of got that from Roy, if I'm not to be too, Uh, going out on a limb and saying that but darkness is a light darkness is a color darkness Mm. blackness is an element and the absence of light doesn't mean it's just dark it's prince used to say just make it dark at the end of every song because every song is a chapter and you need to close out every chapter with darkness and within that darkness prince could talk them and then that became very cryptic and austere and sort of mysterious and Prince got used to talking in the dark at a concert and he felt comfortable there. Even when he was in a full on jam, he could tell the sound, uh, the lighting engineer, turn off all the lights and they would just turn into blackness and they could just jam for a while because he wanted the focus of the crowd to be not on the band, but on themselves. And so they could dance. Right. This is a very complex, multi-level, multi-dimensioned person that understood what real value is in on yeah. on in a live setting, truly uh, a, a revolutionary in live performance. And he hundred uh, percent agree as somebody who only ever experienced it from the point of view of the audience, he used silhouette really well. And it's like, he did use that, like the, the darkness and the blackness in the same way uh, as kind of visual silence, like in the same way that he used the silence in the music and, the strong way he used silhouettes for openers in kind of backlighting it, it, it had as much impact as the sound as well. And as they were, he knew how to marry those two worlds. I think that's why one of the reasons I, uh, what's the best way to put it? I think that's part of why he has such a lasting effect on at least myself is that there are visual and sonic aspects as well as thematic aspects that all marry so well in what he does uh there's there's visual colors and sonic colors and they never clash mm-hmm. and he ne- he knew how to he knew the right image for the right sound and even if they were coming from two different places he knew how to make them not fight each other and i think that's was always a, a fantastic thing to experience from the audience Agreed. And when you have people that are really have mastered what they do the way I have in the way that Roy Bennett has, and you can actually utilize those people to their full potential. Um, it's, it's, um, interesting to me. It's actually very, it's a hard question about which to think is what could Roy Prince and I put together now, what band would it be? How powerful would that be if 
because if, if we were allowed to really take, cause I'm mixing better than I've ever mixed. And, um, you know, they say youth is wasted on the young. I did a good job and I kept it together when I was young, but I know so much now and I have so much to give and I listen better than I ever have and listen to what people want and why they want it. And to hear somebody like Gaga say, I want you to make my mix sound like a lavender knife or to have Simon Levon say, I want my voice. It sounds green now in my ears. I want it to sound blue, sky blue. And I said, I know what you mean. Let me work with the monitor engineer or to have someone know how to describe what they want and be able to facilitate that. Only an experienced person can do that. They only, only someone with experience at doing it can do it. And, um, and I would love to be able to still do that with Prince and maybe somehow that live piano show, taking that on the road and playing it back for people, the multi-track version of it. Um, I would have to get from the estate and, and put it back into a computer and play it back through my soundboard and actually do that with an empty piano on the stage. There'd be a lot of tears, um, but it would be so beautiful. And maybe we could even do it with, I'm riffing here. This is my version of jazz, right? But you have video in the background and then interstitially between songs, you could have people from Prince's past talk about the history of that song. Yeah, and then yeah, you could go, yeah. t- and then you could go to the next song where the spotlight would hit this piano again, and the visual would go to black, and then we could do the next song, and it could go back and forth. Come on, that stuff writes itself. Yeah. That's Prince speaking through me. That's the okay. way it should be done, and that's what I can have to offer. And that would be for Prince fans, unbelievably valuable to as a part of closure for them, because all of us are still a little reeling in our different yeah. ways. Very few people with whom I come across whom I travel across their paths and they say, I'm cool. It's all yeah. good with me. And I understand it all. They all have something there. And I think this would be part of um, the satisfaction of people being able to experience Prince live without having to be able to be there. I 100% agree with you on that, because just from coming, going to like fan parties and things like the MPG gigs, revolution gigs, and even uh, like Judith Hill and, uh, Ingrid Chavez, I got to see an amazing concert by Ingrid Chavez. That was mm-hmm. fantastic. And there, there's still like afterwards, there's this kind of the differing of fan emotions from absolute glee to be back in the room with everyone because the experience was also the friends you made in the queue and the friends, you know, it was mm. such a an entirely encapsulating experience sonically visually and there's this emotive connection to um the people you met and we took care of each other in those cold and rainy queues mm-hmm. you know like so there's like the there's kind of kind of affections forged out of real take taking physical care of each other as well as listening to you know the problems of the day or making sure that they got got tickets for that person but making sure that they got that experience so the the differing levels of just emotion just in a in a regular prince party playing normal music i i think what you're suggesting is an incredibly powerful experience i think you might devastate some people to be quite honest because i mm-hmm. i my experience watching that piano show at paisley park i can just say when we were on our way in they were handing they were handing out tissues to people mm. and i was kind of had this kind of blase thing of like i've watched like I've watched Prince a lot. I really have. And I've listened to some of the bootlegs of 
those particular shows. And I was like, I'm okay. I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to enjoy watching this in a kind of geeky musical appreciation way. And so I sat there and was kind of, and little did I know, um, I was getting kind of emotionally rocky for a while and I was holding it together. And then he started playing a million days. Mm. Uh, and from the minute of, uh, you know, it, it's only been an hour since you left me, but it feels like a million days. And by the end of that, I was wrecked. Like mm-hmm. I was borrowing this tissue, this that had been used by somebody next to me. So it was like, it was already soggy. I was just like, this is a real visceral experience. I'm mm. wiping somebody else's tears off my cheeks. Like, but how beautiful like, is that too? Yeah, yeah. it was. And uh, the two people that were sat next to me uh, to this day, uh, Sarah and Katrina, it's a little bonding moment. It's like, like, we shared this tissue like while crying over Prince. It was like, it's like a kind of, uh, a kind of breaking of bread, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it and then when he played Anastasia and was singing these songs like Liberate Me, and it was just like the take on such a new meaning in mm-hmm. the context, because everything does uh, after death. And it, and it was just like, this is such a powerful thing just to watch. But, yes. but I would say, how would you, because you're going to be behind the desk and you're going to have that how are you thinking that you're going to be with that experience? Because you you will be of service, and you'll be of service to many fans who would love that experience. But there's also, as somebody who's who's grieving an actual person, um, how do you think that that being in the middle of that will be for you? Um, I'm sure it'll be uh, conjure up all sorts of feelings um, from that night and from the different nights. Um, and I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know how to answer that. I would probably have to be in that moment to to experience it. But um, he certainly, especially in the piano, piano stuff, he had a lot of emotive content uh, during the Paisley Park show and then taking it on the road until I left him in New Zealand. And uh, that would, oh, you know, it's putting my producer hat on, right? It's like yeah. I'm trying to make all this up as I go. But having interviews, interstitial interviews with artists that appreciated him talking about each individual song. I think that would be a nice touch, not just what they thought of Prince about the story of that song, the story of that particular piece of the the show. The thing I wouldn't want to do is see a video. We only shot multi-camera video at the Paisley park show from what I know. Um, I don't know what they did in Oakland and and at the U S shows. I don't think they did, but um, even so I wouldn't want to see a visual of Prince playing. I don't think that's, I think that's a little too on the nose. Um, I would leave, I would have a piano on stage in a pool of light. I would have the same projection onto the stage. The only thing missing would be Prince. And I do believe a Q and a would be in order. Kirk and I could talk, I could talk about the mixing process and how that went and how it was to mix on stage with him. Cause I was always on the side of the stage with him and behind him. Um, what that was like at, uh, at, um, in in sydney at the opera house you know i was had to put up pipe and drape so that i couldn't be seen i was right at the front of the stage but on the side and and um we weren't getting along that day we didn't have a good day getting along he was really trying to be to fight with me and i wasn't really taking the bait and but i still had a good experience there and i did a good job for the people that came there um uh but you know i could i could work through all that stuff and if it's really in service to the fans and they want to hear that 
and it would be an opportunity, I think, to use the multitracks would be an opportunity to really be enveloped the same way yeah. people were in a room without just watching it with earbuds or with sets of speakers like yeah. that. We could recreate the actual acoustical environment in which he was yeah. in an actual room and how that played out would be could be life-changing for people. Yeah. And I would love to be a part of that, especially as my career sort of starts to wind down and I'm, yeah. you know, it's coming out of the, 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 this, this hot part of my career. I'd like to, I'd like to do that. And I think that would be a good thing to do for, yeah. for the fans. How many tracks are there by the way? Like on that? Um, you mean how many did a multi-track? Um, yeah. No, how many, how many, like, when oh. you're dealing with just piano microphone, how many like so stereo piano vocal mic? Yeah, and... stereo piano vocal mic. I had a spare mic which I never had to use, and I had a foot mic. I put a, a mic down by his foot, and I tried putting it in the PA Paisley Park. It was carpeted, so that didn't really work. So I gave up on that right away, and I pulled it. It didn't work in in rehearse in sound check the night before, yeah. so I just didn't try and do it. Uh, it was a potential liability with feedback and such, so I didn't use it. But it is tracked. So it is tracked. So we could take the track of that and make it work. Um, but I, I basically, I did stereo piano, his vocal and the, um, and the uh, foot, the foot mic the you know, for him stomping as a percussive effect. And, and that's, that's all. And then I did audience mics at Paisley park. I did a bunch of tracks of audience. Um, but on the other, on the road, I didn't mic audience. Um, I asked him if he wanted to use that stuff live and he said, no, just the regular inputs. I said, okay. So I didn't, bother to do that so there's very few tracks it's really his vocal his piano and and the foot mic and then just all the effects that i did uh which would uh, in some cases i don't know if i track the i don't really remember and i don't have the recordings of those but i i would have to remember whether or not i tracked the effects live that i did otherwise i would have to recreate those effects the, yeah. the descending vocal and things like that um i know i tracked them for show one at paisley park I don't think I track them for show two somehow at Paisley Park. So those are things that if they release it, they're going to have to call me and I'm going to have to come in there and be a producer and sort of say, here's what we need to do. We need to take that vocal and put it through this effect to get it back and regenerate it again. And it'll it'll take some patchwork, but we can make it exactly what it, like it was. I think we've been going a while now, so this might be a, a good time. Uh, one thing, just one last thing. Um, because it's very, uh, I was talking to Chopin about this, it's always very difficult to come up with questions because they always seem a bit a bit iffy, a bit fanboy or what have you, and it's always nice to just talk. But And also you don't ask things that have been asked over and over again. I just wondered if there was anything that you want to share that you've sort of not been asked or that's occurred to you or anything specific that you just wanted to riff on and, and share, Scotty, basically, before we perhaps wrap it up tonight. Boy, giving me an open forum like that, it could be hours. You guys would have to take a nap. I hope you have hammocks where you are. I, I would say that that uh, time heals all wounds. And that is a statement that we've all heard in our life and it's meant something or not at different times. But I would say that I do, I have gone through the, the realization that I'll never mix him again and that I won't be, uh, be able to... Uh, have that nervousness and that, that frostiness about being about mixing that he instilled in me and, um, uh, that I am, I'm okay with what happened and, and how it happened. And I, um, 
it's sad, but we all move on. And if we do the right thing, if, we, if our hearts are in the right place, things like never seeing Prince live, you know, a lot of people wrestle with that one. Oh man, I never saw him live. I should have, oh, I could just kick myself for not going to see him live. All those things or money or arguing about him with, about Prince with money as I had done at the end. And there were like things like that. All that stuff is temporal. It just goes away and we get to actually sit back and then enjoy the process of listening, rediscovering his music, rediscovering our love affair with these songs. Because after all, it's the songs, all the, the, the mystery of it all really is, is uh, revealed in the songs. And, um, and I can go back and I can listen. I go through periods where I'll just listen to Prince on a five hour drive and just go, wow, you know, that was really cool. Or, or, oh, I get it. He heard the effect that I did in 2000. Four, and then he did it on a 2006 record. Oh, all right, man. And I'll, I'll laugh and I'll think that's where you got that. And so there's this little discovery, you know, um, and it's, it's cool, but I, I'm actually cool with how everything has gone down. And um, as upset as, as I could be about not being able to mix him again or give him the best of me, you know, I still want to give him the best of me. I can only do that in his absence, but I'm ready to do that. I'm, I'm okay with that. And I think it would be a wonderful uh, thing to do. And I want to do that before, before I uh, end my career. Scotty, it's oh, been beyond a pleasure, mate. I, and I, I just so love that you're continuing to genuinely endeavor and you doing your job, even though he's not here in many ways. And that's just so nice to hear. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really my pleasure because, um, to engage with you guys and people who want to actually take the time to listen to a two and a half hour you know, podcast about a dead guy from six years ago. It's like, what could be interesting about that? But people do care. They do care. Prince was special. He was somebody who helped shape our sense of male and female, or am I straight or gay, or am I black or white? All these questions that are so tangible now and so important to so many different communities of people in my community, yeah. in gay community, in yeah. the communities of color, all of that stuff is really particularly a poignant and is meaningful now. And to have people still want to be interested in listening to that and talking about it and listening to each other about it. I really appreciate, I think the honor is mine to come on and, and spend time with you guys. I have nothing but thanks. I have nothing but thanks for your, for your time, for your stories and for your energy in, in doing this. I hope you, I sincerely hope that, uh, that we get to uh, be able to experience what you're proposing. Cause I think it's, uh, that would be a beyond fantastic experience. Um, just from the, the small parts of the, the, those nights that I did see, it translates to camera. It translates to sound in such a magical way. There is something there that is not in other Prince recordings. Um, and, and having seen it on camera, at least not being in the room, it does translate and it does. Uh, and it would be lovely, absolutely lovely to kind of be in the room. I look forward to being in the room with you when you do it. Yeah, I can't wait to meet you guys in person. Well, speaking from myself, Paddy, and I'm sure everybody listening, Scotty, thank you so much for sharing those stories, coming here and talking to us today. Thank you so much for your time. Um, this has been the PPUK podcast, and thank you for listening today. <laughs>